You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, welcome back to the show. We're here again. It's another week, man. So many weeks in a row we've been giving you. Episode 18. Oh my pod, it's voter fraud. Brilliant. Yes. I love it. First of all, that was a collaborative title. That's true. I originally named it Oh My Lord's Name in Vain, It's Voter yeah. Fraud. And then Jay had to remind me that I can't do that anymore. You're in trouble with the religious right right exactly. now. Exactly. So I, I, I can't do that anymore. Yeah. So we so we renamed it Oh My Pod, It's Voter Fraud. Yeah. Uh, or I should say Jay did that. So I gotta tell you guys, every single week after we finish our show. I pray to the podcast gods for a slow news week. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So we could give you a very short show and just go over some minor details of what happened, which was basically nothing. And every week I'm disappointed. You guys disappoint me. America disappoints <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah. It's like it's like every day this week with Trump. It was like boom, it's boom, crazy. boom. Like a new conspiracy and a new thing that happened every single day. It's just too much for me to handle. But anyway. Because of that, we have so much to get to. It's actually a little bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's not waste any more time. Let's go right into Honest Abe's housekeeping hangouts. Jay, go. When he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham. Abraham. Uh, all right, Jay. Push our uh, products, please. Go ahead. I will do that. Uh, first of all, we have a Discord. We're talking politics. They're asking questions. You can too. Go there. Your questions will end up on the air. We'll talk about them here. It's a lot of fun. Get into the Discord. We have products. We got travel mugs. We got home mugs because everyone's home. Uh, we got sweatshirts. We got shirts. We got baby shirts. I mean, you name it. We got it. Yep. Indoctrinate your family and your friends into moderate values. Get them wearing some of this March. The link is in our bio on our socials. And that's all I got to say about that. Right. And uh, thank you for those who wrote into our Discord. We got some responses this week. We're going to address them on this show. So keep it up. We really, really love it. Yeah. Uh, next piece of business. So every once in a while, we decide collectively to change up our format for a particular episode. Sometimes it's to fulfill a particular purpose. Uh, other times it's because we're bored. Other times it kind of happens by accident. Uh, last week, for instance, we announced Clay Cogman as our editor-in-chief for our upcoming online publication venture that we're calling The Intermediary. And we did a long episode that included discussion about case law and the Supreme Court that to many of you might have been a bit tedious. We thought, given the happenings of the prior week and RBG and everything, it was an episode that we needed to do. So in getting feedback on episode 17, some of you loved it and some of you didn't. That's fine with us. We understand that when doing a weekly podcast like this one, Not all episodes are going to connect with everyone in our audience base, but we wanted you all to know that we do take your feedback very seriously, and we sort of autocorrect when we feel we went too far in one direction. So that feedback that we get from you guys is, again, very important to us and does influence how we decide to shape the format of our show. So again, please keep it up. 
Please keep letting us know how you think we did. We will never be offended. Justin and I are card-carrying members of the Never Be Offended by Anything Club. That's true. Unless you, like, insult our wives or something. Then it's Yeah, that's on. a problem. Right, yeah. right. Uh, so please, or, or you say that my kids aren't the cutest kids in the world because you're just dead wrong. They are. They yeah, are, they yeah, are. they are. Uh, so please never hesitate to tell us what you think, what we got wrong, what we got right, etc. It actually helps us out quite a bit in getting to know our audience. So that is all the business that we have to attend to today. Let's move into We Care A Lot. We Care A Lot. lot. All right, Jay, we had some responses uh, this week. Uh, Why don't you read us uh, the first one? We had two this week from Still Never Trump, who, you know, a new member of our Discord. Welcome, Still Never Trump. It's good still to know Trump. that you're I like still, that. still Never Trump. Good to know. Are you sure that that's not you, Jay? Yes, it is not me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. From Still Never Trump, uh, listen to your podcast with Pete. Really interesting stuff. I agree. What I've never understood as a conservative myself is if California is so anti-business and anti-capitalism, how did it grow to be the sixth largest economy in the world? Interesting. Very good question. So. Yeah. When we get a question relating to a topic we discussed with a guest, we always like to give the guest the courtesy of responding to the question first, since after all, they are usually the reason we were discussing that topic uh, in the first place. That was one of our most successful interviews, by the way. Uh, yeah. You guys really liked that interview with uh, Santa Monica Pete, as we're calling him. He was uh, he was a great guest to have on with a great story. So we reached out to Santa Monica Pete again to get his reaction to this question. Uh, and here's what he had to say. Quote, my answer to that would be that California's rise as an economic power was built over many decades, starting around the beginning of the 20th century. California was still seen as a business-friendly state until around 30 years ago. If you look at governors and state legislature, California was run in a bipartisan manner. Add to that the advantages of climate being the gateway to the Pacific Rim, and the fact that it attracted entrepreneurial types helped that growth. The state has trended further and further Democratic over the last few decades, as witnessed by the Democratic supermajority in the state legislature right now. Uh, The -the over-the-top, unreasonable level of regulation has been chasing business and average folks out for a while now. Big tech, who the Dems give a lot of leeway to, uh, has made up some of the economic shortfall. Also, extremely large companies with deep pockets, who are big political contributors, seem to find a workaround with legislatures. Take a look at uh, what has been going on with the LA City Council and how they bend their own rules for some very large developers. So, uh, Pete, thank you for the response. Um, I was going to say something similar to that. Uh, Living in Los Angeles for 16 years, I have seen a pretty dramatic change in demographics in the city. I can only speak for for myself here, but it does seem as though the sort of artist community doesn't flock to LA the way they used to. And I'm talking about musicians, actors, artists, et cetera, because it's just too expensive. You know, obviously Hollywood still exists as a place where celebrities live, but the actual work is going to smaller market cities now, especially if it's work that doesn't have an unlimited budget. Mm -hmm. The increase in regulatory burden has made it much more feasible, both financially and practically, to film movies, for instance, in the South than it used to be. I have seen personally, many movie and music studios and actually whole studio lots in the 16 years I've been here closed down, uh, especially over the last decade, and be replaced with big tech 
centers. Uh, so I think that's really your answer. Speaking for Los Angeles in particular, uh, this has become a major tech center of the world. And that's probably why when you drive around, you tend to see a lot more young Asian tech kids than long haired rockers on Sunset Strip. Yeah, a lot of Teslas. Right. The, the rockers have literally been priced out. Yeah. Like when you when you drive down Sunset Strip, it doesn't even look like it did when we when we moved here. It's Not just, anywhere it, close. It's a different vibe, right? Yeah. Uh, but it is indeed true that California is the sixth largest economy in the world. But two things can be true at once, Jay. <laughs> California is friendly to certain businesses that have a great effect on the financial bottom line of the state, like the environmental industry. And true thing number two, California at the same time can be quite unfriendly to the small business community. So that's really all I have to say about that. You have anything to add, Jay? No, I think that's right on. Being here for 16 years, as you said, uh, you really see the difference and the change. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that later. And yeah. uh, it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know what, Jay? Uh, give us our second question before we move on. I will. Also from Still Never Trump, and probably the reason why you think it's me, mm -hmm. uh, listen back to episodes today. I started at 13, and while I agree with Rob on a lot of stuff, I get annoyed sometimes that he always brings everything back to Trump. Mm. There are many reasons the country is so divided right now, and it all doesn't have to do with Trump. Riz, I can see you getting a little red in the face oh, as I yeah. read that. All right, so this, this would be a great question for me to go on a rant. So uh, Riz's rant, kick it. gotta say one of the best riffs ever written wouldn't you agree jay uh easily easily that's pantera cowboys from hell go check it out all right i respectfully disagree with our listener on this and while i respect the fact that this particular listener's handle is still never trump we need more never trumpers i very much believe that trump is the root of almost all of the country's problems right now and i get this criticism from a lot of people uh by the way uh jay's wife is one who consistently tells me that I always bring everything back to Trump and that he's not to blame for everything, but I think she's wrong as well. Luckily, Justin and I have a good enough relationship where I could say that to him out loud and he won't get mad at me, right, Jay? I won't get mad at you. It's true. All right, good, good. She might, but, you know, we'll deal well, with that later. She definitely will. But right, yeah. okay. <laughs> that's your problem, so, not mine. So, right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she could, she could hold her own, that's for sure. Um, so, uh, allow me to give an analogy first, okay? I'm gonna, a little story time here. I love it. Let's go. Yeah. A huge bomb goes off in the middle of a city, right? Mm -hmm. And 20 miles away, there's a guy walking down the street who is suddenly struck with fear when he hears the explosion and sees the smoke bloom. And even though he's 20 miles away and not in any immediate danger, his instinct is to start running as fast as he can. Mm -hmm. So he runs in the opposite direction of the explosion and he gets a couple bucks away and he slips on a banana peel and he breaks his leg. Okay. Now, the direct cause of him breaking his leg is the banana peel that he slipped on. But the indirect and some might say primary cause was the bomb that went off. What is it, a 50s screwball comedy? <laughs> exactly. He slipped on a banana peel? Presumably, he wouldn't have been running, Jay, in panic had right. the bomb not it. detonated, right? I get it. Okay. Yep. Donald Trump is a bomb that has gone off in the center of our political system. And it is my strong belief that the turmoil that this country finds itself in on the federal, state, and local levels are a direct result of the ricochet from the deliberate explosion that is Donald Trump. Now, you might like the fact that Trump was an explosion. You may believe that an explosion was exactly what we needed. You may even believe that the explosion is what the American people sent him there to be. 
But what you may not be considering is the fact that the explosion hasn't been an explosion of positivity and empathy and mediation, but has instead been an explosion of overtly divisive, cruel, childish, and demeaning rhetoric that has now trickled down to every street in America. And when I say trickle down, I mean that the riots, the racial unrest, the all-consuming frustration over the greatest health crisis in our lifetime, and the impending economic crisis that is likely to materialize, is all a result of a CEO who didn't even attempt to bring the country together, but instead exploited, for his own political advantage, every single division that already existed. Now, I remember an an analogy that conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, who we talk about a lot on the show, gave years ago at this point. He, He actually says it a lot, where he says that Trump is not the murderer, he's the coroner. In other words, to a lot of people, politics was already dead. Mm -hmm. All the divisions were too vast to heal at this point. The polarization of our political class had already murdered the body. And Donald Trump simply showed up and said, yeah, it's dead. I'll treat it like it's dead. Basically, he wasn't the guy who killed it. He just acknowledged that it was dead and started building a casket for it or something. Uh, The problem I have with this is that that is not the job of a president. The job of the president of the United States is to, at the very least, try to revive the body. And Trump's utter indifference to even exploring some of the life-saving measures that could have been taken to save the body, and in fact, his persistence to sort of dance around the body in celebration and make fun of the fact that it was dead and throw rocks and lighter fluid on it, made the already grieving American public angry. Mm -hmm. And anger turns to unrest and violence and hate. And in my opinion, that is how history will judge the presidency of Donald Trump, not by the fact that he moved the embassy in another country and gave tax breaks to corporations. As I've said before, even a global pandemic was made infinitely worse by having somebody with Trump's character and demeanor in office because his very first instinct is always to demean and politicize, especially when it's an issue that could eventually reflect poorly on him. Put simply, The result of having a person at the very top of our political system with the character of Donald Trump has a direct effect on the behavior and character of our state governors and mayors and senators and congresspeople. They all become sort of pieces of shrapnel from the original explosion, and that shrapnel ends up making contact with everyone, not just in America, but around the world, because every other country in the world takes their cues from the United States. So it's extraordinarily dangerous for the entire world to have somebody like Donald Trump at the helm. So you may be sitting here listening to this and thinking, well, I didn't like Barack Obama's character either. You know, Obama was a certain kind of politician that didn't appeal to everyone's sensibilities. He was often criticized as being aloof and out of touch with the American people. Uh, And it is true that when a person becomes president, if they carry your particular political values, you're going to enjoy and benefit from the presidency more than the people who don't hold those values will. Elections, as we know and as we have heard, do have consequences. But Obama didn't ever go out of his way to act in an overtly divisive, vicious and malicious way. He had a strong political agenda that may not be congruent with yours, but he didn't demean you 
or write you off as a nutcase or refuse to show any empathy towards your concerns as it related to a particular issue. Obama had very strong convictions on the topic of gun regulation, for instance, and this was deeply concerning for a lot of Americans. He never got up on the podium and called you losers or tweeted about how politicians that disagreed with him were just pawns of the radical right-wing agenda. In fact, I remember vividly a town hall he did where he sat in front of a hundred pro-gun activists and respectfully gave his opinions on the matter while he was heavily berated by the audience because that's what a president does. He or she doesn't always agree with your position, but does always need to empathize with it and at least acknowledge your concerns. We don't have to go through the history and relitigate all of this, but obviously Donald Trump doesn't have the ability to do this. And the damage that it has done to this country is very much bordering on irreparable at this point. And I really, I truly do believe that. Now, one more quick analogy I want to give. For all the listeners who have been in the workforce for any number of years, I'm sure all of you have had good bosses and bad bosses. Mm -hmm. I worked for a guy a long time ago who was a really great guy, actually, had a really great heart, but had the tendency to wear his heart on his sleeve at the office, so to speak. Uh, And if he was having problems in his personal life or his business life, he came in that day with a certain attitude that tipped everyone off immediately as to what mood he was in. And he would be nasty sometimes and snapping at people. You know, you could completely feel the life sort of deflating from all of our bodies as we had to be exposed to that kind of demeanor all day. And after a few hours, everyone was in a bad mood. And you'd go home in a bad mood. And your attitude would affect the mood of your family. And before you know it, everyone is sort of in this negative headspace. And this is why... There are hundreds of thousands, like literally hundreds of thousands of books that have been written on leadership and projecting an air of positivity and thoughtfulness within the workplace, not just to keep your employees even, but for the actual economic success of your business. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be given leeway to a certain extent when we're having a bad day. We're all human beings. All human beings are flawed. You shouldn't quit your job. Because the boss is mean to you one day, you should probably just suck it up and learn that life is sometimes hard, snowflakes. <laughs> but the point is that when you have a guy sitting at the top who is behaving in a certain manner, that behavior starts to be passed down to the behavior of all the people under him or her. And in that way, Donald Trump has been a complete and utter failure in every sense of the word. And he is directly responsible for all the unrest and divisiveness that is taking place right now, period, full stop. Rant done. All right. Excellent rant, Riz. Thank Thank you you. for letting us into your brain for a moment and giving us some perspective. That was great. So I have two things to say in relationship to this, and it's not even that I necessarily disagree at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, if you want to get technical and add some context to what you've already said, I believe you can take this all the way back to Bush v. Gore, which we discussed last week. If Al Gore wins the presidency in that election, I don't think you get Barack Obama. And if you don't get Obama, you definitely don't get Trump as I believe these were all reactionary nominations and votes and wins. Mm -hmm. And secondly, no matter whose fault it is, it doesn't mean, to me at least, that you don't debate the issues at hand. And sure, you can say it as a precursor, but it's not the statement, it's not the argument, it can be the reason, but it's not a justification or excuse to not dive into an issue, because once we stop discussing the issues and only point the fingers, we're lost, no better than the man himself. And by the way, it's what we're seeing a lot of right now, and some or most of that is because of Trump but we really lose if we do it too. 
I take your point for sure, but I still think you have to point your finger at the bomb. And, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, we've already discussed that Trump was a reaction to probably the intellectualism and, uh, you know, the character of somebody like Barack Obama. Yeah. But that's not Obama's fault. No, no, no. uh, And and I don't think Obama ever went out of his way to do anything as vicious as, as Trump does on a daily basis. I'm just making the point that the demeanor of the country starts at the top. Yeah. So when things are going wrong like everywhere, yeah, when things sure. are going wrong on every street in America and people's lives are being destroyed mm-hmm. and there's riots and there's unrest, and you could say, oh, it's those crazy leftists who are rioting. But sure. it all is fruit of the poisonous tree and the poisonous tree is Donald Trump. So I'm sorry, you gotta point the finger at him. No, that's fine. Yeah, But you say it at the top <clears throat> and then you talk about the issue at hand. My yeah. only point is don't let it prevent you right. from getting to the actual issue because then of you course. stop our democratic process and we're all lost. That's I it. get it. I get it. I get it. That's a good point. Okay. Cool. Now, moving on to something that isn't Trump's fault. If you're political junkies like Justin and I are, you might be aware that one of the largest conservative media organizations in the world, The Daily Wire, is moving their entire company uh, with all 70 employees uh, or 70 something employees from uh, from L.A. to Nashville. Mm -hmm. This made big news in the in 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 the politics world for a number of reasons. Uh, Before we get to it, let's hear what Ben Shapiro, the founder of Daily Wire, had to say about why they were moving. Uh, It's a five minute clip. But I think it's important. Sounds like this. Big announcement. Are you ready for a big, 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 big announcement? So I have been asked 1,000 times over the past few years, why in the world are you in California? Like, why? Why would Daily Wire stay in California? I mean, this place has turned into a hellhole. All you do all day long on the show is just complain about how bad California has been. And the answer was that I've been in California literally my entire life, except for a three-year stint when I was at Harvard Law School in Boston. Aside from that, I've spent my entire life in California. And I love this state. It's a beautiful state. It's a state with a lot of culture and a lot of fun to it. You know, it's, a, it's a great place in terms of activities. You got the beach nearby. You got Disneyland. And then over time, it just became a hellhole. And it has become a hellhole at this point. And so yesterday, we here at The Daily Wire announced that we are moving the entire company to Nashville. So just yesterday, Governor Jerry Brown, former governor of California from 1975 to 1983, and then again from 2011 to 2019, he said, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? You can't, you know, okay, you, you say that California's bad. Where are you going to go? The answer is we are going to Nashville. We are taking the entire company and we are picking up and we are leaving and we are putting our headquarters in Nashville. Okay, that, that is where the company will now be located. We're taking all 75 of our jobs and we're taking our tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue and we are moving all of that outside the state of California. And this is specifically and really only due to the crappy governance of the state. It is not because... We are foreign to the state. Again, I've lived here my entire life. My business partner, Jeremy Boring, has been here for 20 years. My parents have been here longer than I've been alive. We're not doing it because we dislike California, because we are newbies, because we couldn't take the heat, anything like that. I've been here the whole time. We are leaving because this place has become so horribly governed that if you have the means to get out, and if you have a company relying on you, and if you have employees who are relying on you, you are going to leave. We are but the tip of the spear. We are not the only ones. Elon Musk has already decided to leave the state He'll probably be taking a lot of employees with him over time. Joe Rogan has already left the state. We are leaving the state as well. Again, we are taking 75 employees who are based in California, and we are moving. We have about 100 employees across the country, and we are relocating to a state that is not run like garbage, Tennessee. And now, did, did my business partner and I, did Jeremy and I and Caleb Robinson, our other business partners, did we ever think that we were going to be moving this company? 
to Nashville? No. Otherwise, we wouldn't have built up these big, beautiful studios here in Los Angeles and employed a bunch of people in Los Angeles. And hilariously enough, when we announced this to our employees, we thought, okay, a lot of people are going to be very upset about it. It turns out far more of our employees are excited about leaving California than would be excited about staying in California because this place has become unlivable. Not only is the rent too damn high because of all of the garbage zoning regulations here, but the quality of life here has degraded radically. Now, I'll be honest with you. I had a tough time convincing my wife just to leave California. Okay, and to be frank with you, I'm going to be spl- splitting my time in some different places, not just in Nashville. But the fact is that trying to get my wife to leave California was not an easy task because she, too, has spent a lot of her life in California. She lived in Sacramento, and now she lives in L.A., and so she's been in California for a very long time. And over the past two years, she's looked around and she said, okay, I guess you're right. And the reason for that is perfectly obvious. Between the city of Los Angeles deciding that they were going to cede the entire city to low-level criminality, they were not going to enforce the law, they were not going to keep the streets clean, they were not going to make it livable for me to allow my children to play outside of our front gate without adult supervision, between them allowing the streets to become incredibly dirty and dangerous, because here's the reality. If I let my kids walk around the neighborhood, they will stumble across two open needles during the course of that walk, because the city has specifically told law enforcement they can't do anything about the rampant homelessness problem that has plagued Los Angeles. There are 66,000 homeless people in L.A. County. Every single underpass in L.A. has entire living facilities for homeless people. This is not, by the way, sympathy to the homeless, many of whom really need serious help. They are drug addicted or mentally ill. And the city has decided that in the name of freedom, they're going to allow the suburbs to be overrun by this homelessness problem that does affect people who are paying their taxes. And between that, between the fact that they've decided to defund the cops and move away from allowing the police to do their jobs entirely, between the increased taxes and the higher levels of crime and the lower levels of cleanliness, between the fact that God decided to plague the state with a giant wildfire spate over the last several years, apparently, It's like, I I didn't need the help, God. Like, I got it. I got it. I didn't need the signs and the wonders to drive me from California. And frankly, I'm just hoping that when Michael Knowles looks back at California as we make our way out, that he turns around, he looks back, and he immediately turns into a pillar of salt. Like, that is my dream. But whether or not that happens, we are leaving, and you're going to see more of this. Again, you're going to see a lot of this. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. You're going to see this in L.A. You're going to see this in San Francisco. People are going to pick up, and they're going to leave. And the people who are most likely to leave are the people who can afford to leave. Let's be honest about this. The people who are going to get trapped in Los Angeles are the people who are lower middle class because they don't have the wherewithal to pick up and leave. They don't get to decide, honestly, where their jobs take place. As the head of a company, I get to decide where we take our jobs and we are excited to allow our people a better living standard moving to someplace like Nashville that is not governed like garbage in a red state than forcing them to stay in a place that is very difficult to raise children and to live. But blue states for too long have thought that they can govern as badly as they want and there will be no consequences. That's true to a point. And then beyond that point, it is no longer true. We have reached the breaking point. We are leaving. And so Daily Wire will see you in Nashville. Now, uh, I don't always agree with Ben on a wide variety of topics, but he's mostly correct about the rapidly deteriorating living conditions here in Los Angeles. Yeah. The, the, the negative aspects that he speaks of are not relegated to just low-income areas of the city anymore. It's the entire city. So, you know, you take your kids to the park, and it is indeed littered with hypodermic needles and human feces and people smoking crack and doing meth. Yeah, in uh, nice areas. In very nice areas, yeah, yeah. and affluent areas that mm-hmm. most people couldn't even live. Yeah. Um, now, all that would be easier to deal with if the cost of living 
reflected the surroundings, right. but yeah. it doesn't. Now, yeah. when I got to LA in 2004, my wife and I rented a studio apartment in Hollywood for $800 a month. It looked over the entire city. It was stunning. Remember this place, Jay? I do, of course. Yeah, especially coming from Boston. It had a rooftop pool. Yeah, you know, in Boston, we were paying twice that for a one-bedroom rat-infested hellhole. In hole. a basement. Yeah, in a basement, right? But sick, you know, it, it was it was the kind of thing where it was like we felt like we made it, even though it was a studio apartment. It was beautiful and it had this incredible view. It was just, it was awesome. So, sixteen years later, and we checked this out on Zillow to confirm the same apartment is going for twenty two hundred dollars. That's nearly a two hundred percent increase. And I think we can confidently say that most people's salaries haven't gone up two hundred percent over that time period. Certainly okay. not. Yeah. yeah. So so you add in all the negative, the homelessness, the traffic, the fires, the fact that it's almost impossible to do anything cool because it takes six months to get a reservation for anything. <laughs> like whenever they open like a new exhibit for kids downtown at oh, some museum, yeah. you, you like you literally need to get in line for a year to get mm-hmm. there. You know, what I'm getting at is that living in the city really doesn't add up even with the beaches and sunshine. And by the way, even the sunshine thing has changed. It's so great anymore. Right. There has been a marked change in the weather patterns in this city over the last decade. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say definitively it's global warming. I'm not a scientist. But if you live on the west side of LA, in particular where Jay and I live, it's overcast for at least half the year. Yeah. I mean, it, it used to be, and I remember this vividly, it used to be we had what they call this marine layer that mm-hmm. would set in in the morning and by noon it had burnt off. Now it sticks around all day. Yeah. And by the way, it's also, it was a hundred degree day today yeah. and we're almost to October, which is also right. unheard of, you know, for 10 years ago. Right. It, the the weather has changed, but the hundred degree days I like, cause I like the heat and, and we live in a beach community. Yeah. So but that's it's just great. Unco- it's but just I'm, uncommon. Of course. But I'm talking about in the winter in LA where it's never supposed to rain and you know and it's sunny, it's sunny all the time, all the time yeah. right <laughs> it's actually not the most yeah. of the winter is cloudy uh, That's it, true. you lose about half the year to, yeah. that you can't go to the beach yep. right before we go any further jay has some numbers he wants to talk about jay do it so in relationship to what you just said uh just some some numbers that coordinate with that sentiment uh as of december 2019 a population number of california stalled at 39.96 million and lost 39 thousand from then to july it's the first time since 2010 that more people left california than moved in and it's the slowest recorded growth since 1900 so here in in la and california you have to pay tax on total wealth not income which is a big problem because a lot of wealthy people that live here this includes assets like a home in paris you got to pay 0.4 percent of the value of all of your assets each and every year and there's a proposed increase in income taxes coming So right now, the top rate is 13.3%, could go up to 16.8%. Added to a federal rate of, say, 37%, you can get up to, you know, 57 more than that in percent in total taxes for the year, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, So a couple of reports from the LA Homeless Services Authority, which if you were to ask me what the greatest shift in Los Angeles city and county has been, it's the homeless population. Oh, yeah. So the count is this, uh, 66,436 people in LA County were homeless as of July this year. It's a 13% rise from last year. The city of Los Angeles saw a 16.1% rise to 41,290 people. There's cardboard and tent cities everywhere we've spoken about we've spoken about on the, on the uh, podcast. And as you mentioned, median home prices are up 5.5% for the year. Median home prices, $670,000. Yeah, and now, you know, we don't have to get into this. Probably we'll wait for another time. 
But Governor Newsom is now exploring other uses for our taxpayer money, like reparations, which was announced right. today. So, you know, it's just it's like bonkers here. It's craziness. Yeah. Yeah. No, it there is a lot like everything Shapiro said in that uh, in that piece. Um, yeah. I think he's mostly right. But I do want to talk a little bit about the good, because as with sure. most things, there are sort of two sides of the story here. Yeah. So uh, and and right wing commentators tend to not do that kind of thing, especially when they're talking about a very liberal city like like Los Angeles and leaving it. So, Right. Yeah. Uh, So gentrification, which is usually bad for low income people and good for high income people, has taken hold in this city like nothing I've ever seen before in my life. Areas that were gang territory and crime ridden when we moved here in 2004, areas like Inglewood are young, vibrant, hipster areas now with coffee shops and art galleries and all the rest. Even Silver Lake, far out east, where you wouldn't even set foot back in the day or now, like, you know, it's it's like the the lower east side or something. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And and, you know, notice how in in that in that clip from Shapiro, he says uh, low level crime is yeah. on the rise. The truth is that 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 violent crime is still at a 50 year low in L.A. It, the, it's the low level crime, the people smoking crack on the street, the people defecating on the street that has really gone up. But, I, right. you know, in addition, I challenge anyone to find another area in the United States in any city that is being developed at the rate, at least pre pandemic mm-hmm. of downtown L.A. I mean, the the amount of cranes and construction sites, it's very impressive. So, you know, and Jay and I, you know, we live near this newish mall in Century City uh, that we go to all the time. We're sort of obsessed with it. At least we Mm -hmm. were before the pandemic. It is the single most expensive mall ever built in American history. Uh, The L.A. restaurant culture has exploded like nothing I've ever seen. I always say to my friends that, that I could find noodle dishes in my neighborhood from like a dozen different specific regions of Asia. I mean, it's, it's, so it's, specific. An, inc- it's an incredible yeah. thing. And, and we love the, noodles, don't we? Rizzo? Right. We love noodles. And the, the cultural explosion is amazing. Yeah. So what I'm really interested in and something I'd like to discuss in the future, maybe in another episode, is sort of the collision between vast gentrification, cost of living, homelessness and overall quality of life, because I don't think we can just chalk all this up to, quote, liberal governance, as Ben Shapiro tries to do. I think it's a lot more complicated. I have a feeling, for instance, the homelessness crisis is like a direct result of the gentrification. You know, people get priced out of their homes. They start living in their car. And within a few months, they're on the street suffering from mental illness. Um, What I will agree with Ben on is the fact that liberal governance has probably dictated that the police stand down on a lot of these so-called quality of life issues. I've seen it with my own eyes. I mean, just a few months ago, I was walking my dog and there there was a car on my street that was, it was like a van. And... It, the actual smell that was emanating from the van was was hideous mm-hmm. and there was clearly a vagrant in the van it was all like garbage strewn all over the van like he had been living there for years just garbage everywhere and there was a cop parked right down the street you know my kids play on the sure. street so there's a cop right down the street so i walked over to the cop with my dog and i was like uh you see that down there? And he's like, well, you don't, you don't like that in your neighborhood? Like sort of jokingly, he was sort of sarcastic. And I said, is there anything you guys could do about that? And he sort of rolled his eyes and was like, "Eh, they don't let us do anything about that kind of stuff anymore. And you could tell from his response that he was 
angry about it. Like he was sure. disappointed in the fact that he couldn't do anything. Yeah, I could see that. You know, there's clearly people telling these cops to stand down. When a guy, yeah. I've had incidents with people doing drugs on my property. They tell them to move down the street. They never arrest them. Now, I, you know, I was telling that to my mother and she brought up a good point. Like, okay, what, 66,000 homeless people? Yeah. Are you going to arrest all those people? Where no, are you going right. to put Where them? Are you gonna put Where are you going to put them? What are you charging so, them with? Right. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. I, it's not necessarily liberal governance. It might be a result of all this gentrification and the fact that people are just becoming displaced in the city. It is becoming a city of the haves and have nots. There's very few areas now that are low income areas. It's like New York. It's like what happened in New York. We need to look up when uh, Rudy Giuliani was a human being and not a rabid venomous bat. Uh, We need to see (laughs) what he did with New York because he did a pretty good job. And we need we need some of that here. I agree. I agree. So anyway, that's our take on that. We are going to move on. Moving on. I gotta learn to move on sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have a new segment for you today. A new segment. A new segment. New segment alert. I love it. This is a space for us to discuss faith, theology, and how it intersects with our politics. This segment is called Keep the Faith. Do it. So uh, as we talked uh, about a little last week, Amy Coney Barrett was one of the two judges being considered by the Republicans to take the seat previously occupied by the great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, We found out this last weekend that uh, she was officially selected. Republicans and conservative pundits are now running with the narrative that the left doesn't like Amy Coney Barrett because she's a devout Catholic. And we'll get to that in a second. First, I thought Tommy Vitor from Pod Save America, our competitor podcast, by the way, summed up why the right is going with this narrative. Let's hear what Tommy had to say about it. He's been on a roll lately. And then we'll discuss. Tommy, go. So Joe Biden is Catholic. Uh, he would be the second Catholic U.S. president after JFK. If Barrett is confirmed, the Supreme Court will have six Catholics out of nine people. 30% of Congress is Catholic. Like The suggestion that like Somehow Catholics are an aggrieved party in this country is so completely ludicrous. Uh, it stems from this, you know, moment in the 2017 confirmation hearing with DiFi, which she said something that was kind of dumb. But what's clear is they don't want to talk about the ways that she would rule. They don't want to talk about getting rid of the Affordable Care Act a week after the election in the middle of a pandemic. And so they do what they always do, which is try to create these sideshows. You have clowns like Hugh Hewitt saying that all progressives hate all Catholics and making these, you know, absurd uh, blanket statements based on some tweet they saw that offended them. And it's, you know, it's actually kind of laughable this time around. Okay, so since I basically agree with Tommy's assessment, let me go first and then, Jay, you can offer a counter, okay? Okay, sounds cool. All right, so here's the thing. Like Tommy says, when, when Republicans feel cornered by something, they always, always, always revert to the culture war. I have said this now a dozen times on this podcast, and I will keep saying it until it's no longer true. (laughs) The culture war is what riles up the base. Policy talk doesn't. And the culture war narrative is that if you're a conservative in America, and in fact, in the West in general, not just America, all of the West, you are discriminated against at every avenue of life. 
you are the true victims. They don't like you in academia. They don't like you in Hollywood. The media doesn't like you. Every national corporation doesn't like you. But above all else, what they really, really hate about you, what they just cannot stand about your way of life is that you're a person of faith. The right has been on this kick since the 1960s. That has been a conservative talking point for 60 years. The left resents people of faith is the talking point. They look at you as a rube, a moron, a simpleton, clinging to your God and your guns. But unfortunately for them, outside of the outliers, which I will get to in a minute, it's belied by the facts on the ground. As Tommy Vitor pointed out, Biden is a devout Catholic. So was Nancy Pelosi. Our Congress on both sides isn't just filled with Catholics. It's overrun with religious people, deeply religious people on both sides of the aisle. Frankly, I personally wish it wasn't. The Pew Religious Landscape Survey reported that as of 2014, 22.8% of the U.S. population is religiously unaffiliated like me. Now, that's a pretty high number. It's the highest Mm -hmm. in in American history. For sure. And and I know a few weeks ago when we did our, our Back to Basics episode, we talked about how it makes sense that the Republican voting base would be mostly people of faith. However, we didn't mention the fact that there are a great deal of religious Democrats as well. So Mm -hmm. Tommy is correct, and I was saying this before any of the pundits were actually saying it. Amy Coney Barrett thinks the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional and should be repealed. According to KFF tracking poll that was conducted last year, 61% of Americans have a positive opinion about the Affordable Care Act. That's a very popular government program. And you know what? I'm not one of those people. I actually don't like the Affordable Care Act. But from a, from a political standpoint, when 61% of the population likes something and your Supreme Court nominee has repeatedly said she would support repealing that thing, you would want to change the subject too. <laughs> and changing it to a culture war issue is always a winner for Republicans. That's my take. Jay, give me yours. Okay, so I, of course, don't think it's so crazy that this was, if what we're calling it is a preemptive strike, considering I believe there absolutely is religious discrimination in everyday life that derivates mostly from the left, not solely, but mostly. However, in relationship to this issue specifically, while I believe this shouldn't be an issue, I mentioned last week in our profile on Barrett that her faith was already called into question quite rudely by Senator Dianne Feinstein in 2017 when she noted that, quote, dogma and law are two different things, and I think whatever a religion is, it it has its own dogma. The law is totally different, and I think in your case, Professor, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws, and here's the famous line, is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when it comes to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for in this country, end quote. She suggested that Barrett had a long history of believing that religious beliefs should prevail. And Barrett stressed very strongly that she did not believe it was lawful for a judge to impose personal opinions from whatever source they derive upon the law. That's a quote. And she pledged that her views, for example, on abortion, quote, or any other question will have no bearing on the discharge of her duties as a judge. And when questioned by Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut about Roe v. Wade, she responded by saying, I'm sure every nominee before you would have personal beliefs about that precedent and many others, but all nominees are united in their belief that what they think about a precedent should not bear on how they would decide cases. The reason I mention this again is that I've seen these quotes in some form in pretty much every single article I utilized in putting that profile last week together. Mm-hmm. So if they aren't mentioning it now, they sure did prior to this announcement. Additionally, it comes up now in articles by NPR, The Washington Post, AP, The Guardian, Politico, The New York Times, New York Magazine, CNN. Now, only one of those sources called her faith rightly irrelevant, but they still mentioned it. And we heard in the last clips, if confirmed, she would be one of the six Catholics on the bench, 
joining an Episcopalian who was raised as a Catholic and two Jews. And by yes. the way, let's take two of the Catholic justices aside for a moment, right? Yeah. Sonia Sotomayor and Clarence Thomas. They are complete ideological opposites. So I think it's ridiculous that her religion is being called into question as an issue, which I believe that it is. I think, first of all, that you have to mention her faith as a Catholic because it's a big part of who she is. She has six kids. Two of them are adopted from Haiti. Yeah. That's, that, that is part of the, her Catholic faith. So mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily agree that just because an article mentions that she's a Catholic, that means they're making an issue of it. With that said, I will, I will also say that people like Bill Maher uh, last week didn't help anyone no, on this topic uh, with what he had to say about yeah. Amy Coney Barrett on his show. Now, before I play the clip, I'll say that Bill Maher is usually my, I, I, I call him my political spirit animal. Yeah. Uh, I happen to agree with most of his viewpoints, and I think he's, he's typically spot on. I love the fact that, like me, he is absolutely a liberal against leftism. I would tell him to 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 take that moniker if I ever met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he consistently goes after the far left and cancel culture and goes after free speech. And he's he does one of have, the, you know, he does have blinders on though when it comes to religion. He made his documentary. Yeah, uh, and we'll get to know? that. I'm going to talk yeah. about that in a second. Okay. Yeah, he is one of the few on the left though that acknowledges the vicious anti-Semitism problem that does yes. exist on the fringes of the far left uh, with Congress people like you know Ilhan Omar and Rashida mm-hmm. Tlaib and all those, uh, but. What he had to say about Amy Barrett did nobody any favors. This is what that sounded like. But apparently the pick is going to be this Omi, Omi, Amy Comey. (laughs) We'll all be saying this name a lot, I'm sure, because she's a nut. Religion. I was right about that one, too. Amy, (laughs) sorry, but... Amy Comey Barrett, Catholic, really Catholic. I mean, really, really Catholic, like speaking in tongues. Okay. Um, first of all, the Catholics don't speak in tongues. I think that's like a different sect of Catholicism, right? Or it's a or different Christianity. Yeah, it's a different yeah. sect of Christianity. Although the group that she was, that she belongs to, have they have spoken about uh, speaking in tongues, but okay. that doesn't mean that she's necessarily <laughs> right. tied to any of that. Right. Okay. Now, Going out know, on at- a limb. Right. At the same time that Mar is my Bill Mar is my spirit animal on many political issues, I do believe his entire take on religion is incorrect. And yeah. it took me a while to realize that, by the way. I was very much like him. And actually, Jay, you were one of the people that turned me around on it, in addition to a lot of other things that I that used to just always think like Bill Mar that religion in general always was bad. a net negative mm-hmm. for society. Sure. You know, I also think that Mar is Bill Maher is the, is the very definition of an elitist, especially when conservatives talk about coastal elitism. Yeah. Uh, he is arrogant. He thinks he's smarter than everyone. Uh, and he definitely looks down his nose at people who believe in God. He says this all the time. He's mm-hmm. open about it. His entire movie, Religious, uh, is, is proof of that. Uh, but, but I want to stress that I don't think his personal opinions on this matter are indicative of widespread hatred of people yeah. of faith on mm-hmm. the left. I just don't think, you know, uh, I'll tell a little personal story. Uh, and some pe- some of our my family listening to this might not even know this, but my kids went to Catholic school for two years. Yeah. We, we, uh, we needed to find a solution to, so they, they needed a school rather that had an after school program. Right. There was a Catholic school that was 
financially feasible for us at the moment. It was in a great area so my wife could get there. Uh, it was right down the street from her work so she could pick them up. It's very convenient. And we said, okay, for a couple of years, let's send them to this school. In hindsight, I actually wish I'd kept my daughter there because uh, my daughter is, uh, she's, she's a little bit willful. And the, 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 the teachers at they're Catholic strict. school, yeah. they're, it's a completely different world. Like they yeah. would discipline the kids in front of the parents, mm. um, you know, not physically, but yeah, like no, yell at them. And like, you know, if, I remember if, you liking the school structure right, and system yeah. in general. Yeah. But if any of the teachers at public school did that, like oh, they'd sure. be fired instantly, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, so it was, a, it, the, the, everyone had a different vibe there, but even there at Catholic school, there was a rule. We couldn't talk about Trump. This was back in 2016. It was too divisive an issue. So they right. like the school set up a rule that you weren't allowed to talk about the president of the United States. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a Catholic school. Okay. Yeah. And I would sit there for morning flag. Uh, they would do the pledge of allegiance and they would uh, say the Lord's prayer. Yep. Uh, don't ask me to well. recite it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would sit there and talk to some of the parents and all of the parents were as mortified by Trump as I was. These sure. are Catholic people. Yeah. They were, they're, they're on the left. They are Democrats. So again, the idea that Catholics are, are, are all conservative or that there's, there's, there's no religious people on the left, it's, it's a ridiculous notion. I agree with that. I yeah. think what I'm talking about, and I've encountered a great many of them, are people that are uneducated or don't care to actually understand or have empathy for the person that they're speaking to. There are too many of those people in this country. I've come across a great many of them. Some are on the left. Most are on the left. Some are on the right. It's just, you know, if you want to call that anecdotal, then fine. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Well, you know, I want to say one more thing, and I don't want to go too down a rabbit hole here, but I think it's important. You know, I was was talking to, and I'm curious to see what you think about this, Jay, Mm -hmm. because I was talking to my father-in-law the other day, who's in town um, to help us with our kids, and uh, we were talking about a Joe Biden ad that we saw wherein Biden makes the case uh, that if he becomes president, he's going to put Anthony Fauci at the top of the pack and he's going to listen to the science and talk to the experts. And he was really setting up a contrast between him and Trump. And that contrast is that I believe in expertise. I believe mm-hmm. in science. I believe in the data compiled by the medical community. Yeah. And uh, my father-in-law was agreeing with me that this is a good strategy for Biden because it draws a line in the sand and sort of sifts through the, you know, the bottom line is that there has been literal wars waged against the so-called intelligentsia since the beginning of civilization. And a lot of these wars were sort of promoted by the religious population in that particular society. In other words, there has been throughout history an effort on behalf of religious communities to demonize the intelligentsia, including the scientific community, for per, for promoting things that were at odds with the teaching of that religion. And we mm-hmm. see it even today in certain sure. religions. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not saying that that's happening now in America, but to this day, I do feel like there is a resentment over the so-called intellectuals in society. And the fact that that intellectual intelligentsia community is usually going to be a non-religious community, you know, I I think that sort of adds to the resentment. So I I think both, to close this out, I think both the faith-based community and the faithless community yeah. are constantly sort of looking down at each other. Would you yeah, agree? It's a problem, and there's a, there there's information that doesn't get across, right? right. And, and, and 
this is a whole, this is an entire podcast, forget about an episode. Yeah. But, you know, I found a very big distinction between what I would call the white Western church mm-hmm. and, for example, the- theologians in academia right. who are incredibly intelligent. You know, I finished yeah. my master's program, which was a joint program with the University of Cambridge. I'm not England. talking about intelligence. I, yeah, I, like you just said, they're incredibly intelligent. We're talking about the intelligentsia, the academia, the yeah. The well, when I say intelligentsia, are... I mean sort of the societal uh, science elites, the intellectuals. Those people tend not to be the religious people. And Agreed. I know you're saying you have a lot of you. You know, finish what you were saying. And then we'll I, I, yeah. I mean, what I was going to end with is that I believe that religion and science are they really complement each other well you personally you're the only christian i've ever met yeah or messianic jew rather that (laughs) that i've ever heard say that's also interchangeable (laughs) right exactly uh i i I do really firmly believe that that one really proves out the other uh the more you look at science the more you see god and vice versa Right. But like even even Nazism, uh, you know, th- that was they weren't religious, the Nazis, mm-hmm. but an element of Hitler's uh, rhetoric was that the sort of Jewish intelligentsia, Jewish intellectual sect yeah. had to be destroyed because it was destroying the working, the German working class. Mm-hmm. So th- that I'm saying that struggle between the the in- intellectual class and the working class has always existed throughout Agreed. civilization, and the working class tends to be more religious, typically. I suppose that that's, yeah. that's probably true, but also, yeah. you know, I think that you have to look into, like, we talk about with every other issue, there's not a nuance here, you yeah. know, how are they wielding scripture? Because scripture can be wielded as a, as a weapon very easily. We've seen it, you mentioned numerous wars, actual wars, that have been fought in the name of religion. Now, yeah. if you actually go back and you look at, you know, something like the Crusades, for example, those were it's it's just scripture that is ripped from the pages it's mistranslated right. and people are then fighting for something that has nothing to do with the with the plot right and so that happens far too often and i'm sure that if you drill down into the nuance here you'd find the mm-hmm. same thing interesting yeah yeah i think uh this is a good conversation i'm glad yeah. we had it fruitful i, I enjoyed it yeah <laughs> okay so let's move on uh we have another segment for you this week the hits keep on coming jay bring them yeah. So we will definitely be bringing this segment back a lot, especially if Trump ends up winning a second term, God forbid. Uh, this new segment is called Controversy of the Week. Kick it. So if you've been living under a rock this past week, uh, maybe you didn't hear that the New York Times released a rather bombshelly, is that a word, bombshelly? Yeah, it is now. Yes, a rather bombshelly report uh, based on Trump's tax returns that they were able to acquire over the last 15 years somehow. So first, I want to say that it's a stunning piece of journalism. And if you haven't read the entire thing, I really suggest you do. I am not a huge fan of the New York Times generally. And a lot of the reasons why I'm not a fan are the same reasons that Justin and I are starting our own publication. Uh, But I will say that uh, only the New York Times could produce a piece like this. It is incredibly detailed. It took a ton of research and resources and money to pull something like this off. So uh, whether you're on the right or the left, uh, whether you call the New York Times the New York slimes or not, you should, at the very least, take a moment to appreciate our freedom of the press 
and the fact that there are still opportunities out there for real journalism. Yeah. So Jay, why don't you sum up the main points of the piece for us here? You got it. So as Riz just mentioned, this past Sunday, ahead of last night's debate, the New York Times published the first in a series of stories based on an investigation into Trump's tax returns, citing tax documents and data spanning two decades. The results of this investigation find that Trump has paid very little in taxes over the past decade while claiming a massive refund. This story, while quite complex and nuanced, flies in the face of Trump continuously refusing to follow political tradition and release his tax returns publicly. The New York Times story suggests that Trump mostly avoided paying taxes the old-fashioned way by essentially losing money. For those that aren't aware of how our tax system works, businesses only pay taxes when they generate a profit, and this story indicates that the president is bleeding money. So much money that in 2016, he paid only $750 in federal income taxes and another $750 the first year he was in the White House. Despite the massive losses in the report, the few revenue generators it does mention are the television show The Apprentice, where he earned something in the realm of $197 million over 16 years and an additional $230 million in related endeavors. Trump Tower and a few other real estate investments have also made money for the president. Among the businesses losing money are his Trump golf courses to the tune of $350 million lost since the year 2000, and his hotel in Washington, D.C., reported losing $55 million between 2016 and 2018. He claims many other pretty silly deductions that are very easily found by researching this a bit further on the internets. The tax refund he received, which amounts to $72.9 million, began in 2010 and is currently the subject of an IRS audit and investigation. Additionally, he has numerous loans that net out to about $421 million coming due in the next four years, for which he is personally responsible for, with no entity in front of him for cover. The New York Times story does not go as far as to call the president a tax cheat, as these documents do not disclose the entire story, and he very well could just be utilizing the U.S. tax code to his advantage. Tax returns are mostly just numbers with little to no explanation, so it's difficult to draw any complete conclusion. The scariest conclusion that one could draw from this, however, and remains an unknown because of the incomplete picture these returns paint, is the answer to whom he owes all of this money to. Not that I'm a big fan of quoting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but she has a fair point when she recently called this a matter of national security due to the fact that these creditors have leverage over him and the public has a right to know who they are. Francine Lippman, a tax expert and professor with the University of Nevada School of Law, called the tax returns aggressive, but also stated that we don't have all the details. That doesn't mean it's tax fraud, but Trump is taking some very aggressive positions. Regardless of what it is, two things are clear, while we can't be sure of any inherent illegalities. Number one, this is very fishy. And number two, we need more information to know what all of this actually means. The New York Times followed up this first article by releasing a second with the math for President Trump's 2016 return that shows exactly how this kind of thing is done, and we'll link to that article in our blog. Excellent, excellent job. Thank you for uh, for bringing us into all that, Jay. Yeah. So, you know, like we've done in the past, I wanted to give a left-wing pundit versus right-wing pundit reaction to the story, just so you guys can sort of get a sense of the disparity that exists between the two sides here. Yeah. So this clip is the Pod Save America guys, again, sort of giving their main takeaways from the piece in the New York Times. Uh, I think they make some some pretty poignant points, so uh, listen up. We have talked before about, you know, in 2016, like Trump's economic appeal was based on, he said he had that quote, all my life I've been greedy. Now I'm going to be greedy for the United States of America. And it was somewhat believable because you're like, yeah, he is a greedy asshole, but maybe he'll use some of that magic to help all of us, right? 
Well, it turns out he just decided to be greedy for himself. He didn't give a shit about the rest of the country. He got into office. He used the office to steer money to his businesses um, to sort of like do you have like lobbyists and foreign actors and everyone else like give money to Trump properties because he needed the money and didn't do a, didn't do anything for anyone else. And now we have 8% unemployment. The guy couldn't even give people an extra $600 a week for unemployment benefits. He wants to take away their health care coverage. He doesn't want to give any more direct payments. He doesn't want to help any more small businesses in the middle of the pandemic. But meanwhile, he's working the system as hard as he can to pay off his debts. That's who he is. That's who he is. Yeah, it's probably not how you want to close out a campaign, for being honest here. I mean, like, there's, yeah, there's a bunch of pieces. Like, there's some, there are juicy details in this story. Like, I bet you 80% of the country ultimately re- knows that uh, he paid 750 bucks in federal taxes one year. I bet a similar number hears about the, the $70,000 uh, in write offs for hair care or whatever it was. And to your point, John, like in 2015 and 16, he did have this populist side of him. He pretended that he was going to change the way you tax hedge fund guys because they were getting away with murder. This story shows that he has been exploiting all the same loopholes. He is a tax cheat. Uh, and, and you have to make a, a case about a corrupt system that lets rich jerks like Donald Trump use tax loopholes and accounting tricks to do things that would get the rest of us audited or or maybe thrown into jail. So. I do think this is a big deal. I think Biden should play this up at the debate. Uh, and it's something that people will hear. And, you know, for all the Teflon Don, nothing impacts him. This will be remembered. This will uh, undercut his core argument for why he ran in the first place, which was that he's a successful business guy who could translate that to running the country. That didn't happen. Now, uh, Biden didn't play it up at the debate, uh, mostly because he never had a chance to, which we'll get to. In a, in a few minutes here. Uh, but I think uh, the guys on Positive America are basically correct here. The, the $750 in taxes, I don't think that is really the big bombshell. I think the big bombshell is the fact that Trump has repeatedly, over time, run businesses that have failed. And his current business is failing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. He puts his name on buildings, but doesn't really seem to get much out of it financially. And of course, there are those. There are going to be those Trump people who will still be like, he's a better businessman than you. And I'm not even sure that's true at this point, because I, I guess it depends on how one defines good business person, because does owing hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> and not having much in the way of liquid assets. And by the way, the realization that most of his wealth came from his appearance on a TV game show and yeah. not from his businesses. Does that make this guy a better businessman than anyone else? I mean, I guess it's debatable. Makes him a better politician. Right. You know who does have liquid cash in the bank, Jay? Who that? Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, <laughs> Justin Siegel, etc. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the, the bottom line is, do I want a guy with these kind of financial credentials in charge of our economy? F no, I don't. And that's how this hurts him. You know, by contrast, let's give you a right wing take on this. So so Matt Walsh tweeted. Also a Catholic. Yeah, also a Catholic. Uh, he's a conservative Catholic commentator. Uh, he tweeted a sentiment that I sadly think a lot of conservatives feel on this topic. Uh, he said, quote, the government takes over three trillion dollars a year and wastes most of it. Your moral obligation is to contribute as little to that pile as you can. Donald Trump should be commended for his service. You know, so, <laughs> I, I have a couple of scripture verses for him. I right, exactly. You. So, so, you know, I guess the question is, Jay, and the discussion we could have briefly here is, is that the sort of generalized Republican response? Because I have heard now a lot 
of people yeah. on the right look at this as a badge of honor. Like Trump, you know, first of all, we know Trump's an idiot, so he's not doing his own taxes. So we, obviously he's got teams of accountants. Yeah. So the idea that he saved all this money, you know, is that a badge of honor? Is that like, oh, that this is this is a good businessman. This is this guy's just smarter than you are, and that's why you're pissed off about it, Lefty. Is that sort of the thing? I, I mean, I don't know about badge of honor, but I got to tell you, this is I don't and I don't know to this degree. I think you know what we heard from that lawyer from uh, the University of Nevada said this is very aggressive, and I would agree with that. Now, it is true in business in general, there are tax loopholes that you hire smart accountants to right. take advantage of, so that you pay the least amount of money in taxes, both personally and professionally. That is a known thing that is done in this country. These loopholes do exist. Some are some exist on purpose so that small businesses can thrive or that mm -hmm. larger businesses can thrive. So, yeah. I, I mean, badge of honor, like I wouldn't go shouting it from the rooftops because the IRS may come down and double check your math and you don't really want that. Uh, yeah. But it is something that is not particularly new. Uh, this happens yeah. all the time. I, I think yeah. we need to look at, like I said in, in my report, we need to look into it to see what the larger picture means. I think there's some issues and some nuance to pull out of it. Right. But it's, yeah. it's, it's business as usual for a corporation. So, okay, bigger question. Will this move the needle at all? I mean, I've we have not found one thing to move the needle right. for, for right. this man. So my answer is no, never, ever, unless he yeah. murdered someone and then maybe. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we on the left already know this about donald trump anyone from new york already knows he's a crook yeah. i mean there's a 10 million stories so uh, you before know. this report came out i could have told you his most successful business was the apprentice right it, it is yeah absolutely um so you know whether it's the that he didn't pay any taxes you know is there somebody sitting in middle america who's thinking man i'm paying 35 percent of my lousy income in yeah. taxes and this guy paid 750 dollars he makes billions of dollars like maybe maybe people will be pissed off i don't know i don't know yeah probably not though but one more question uh, there has been a good deal of discussion over whether or not trump's excessive debt yeah. makes him a national security risk which yeah. you mentioned in your piece you know the fact is he owes a of money yeah. to a lot of folks and we have no idea who they are because he hasn't disclosed any of that so so how do we know that he isn't indebted to a foreign adversary yeah. and while supposedly working on behalf of the american people is actually working on his own personal financial behalf i think this is a very serious question this is the question in my mm -hmm. opinion yeah who does he owe this money to and right. does it affect the american people does it affect his job as being the commander-in-chief and the president i mean you know, yeah. a, a bare-chested man on a horse comes to mind. Right. Well, you know, and and, and it's funny you say that because this is what I think. If Biden were smarter, his campaign were smart, this is what they do. Mm -hmm. He would announce that within a month of becoming president, if Joe Biden becomes president, his administration will draft a bill making it a requirement yeah, that every single candidate for president of the United States, not just release their tax returns, because that was always like a courtesy, but they didn't, yeah. it was no law, make it a law. But whether, you know, whether they're under audit or not, but they also should have to disclose all of their financial information so that the American people have a clear idea of if this candidate has ulterior financial motivations or or, or whatnot, yeah, you know, I, I, agree. I, I think I think that's the very least they should do it. It's crazy that it isn't a law already. Frankly. Completely agree. Right. It's a little transparency would go a long way here, and uh, and it could have been enacted, you know, decades ago. And they think right. thinking about it. Yeah, and I know a lot of of right wingers back in 2016 when when this was 
being litigated were like, well, it's none of anyone's business what's happening in his financial life because, you know, it was his his personal life. But clearly it is. It, yeah. it is important because we need to know where he got his money, when he got his money, mm-hmm. who he owes money to, how much money he owes, because that very well could have implications for how he conducts foreign policy, right? Yeah, I agree. And by the way, like, you know, as we typically poo-poo the media here, I will do mm-hmm. it yet again. They're yeah. focusing on his hair, and they need to be focusing on this issue alone. This is yeah. the smoking gun right here. We need to know these answers. It's important. I agree. I, and I think there are journalists at the New York Times who are doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if we find out that all the money Donald Trump has gotten it's, has come from Russian banks. Yeah, you know that might very well explain what his, uh, you know, wh- why he has that attitude towards Putin. You know, mm-hmm. Putin is Russia. Yeah. So every bank in in Russia is Putin. That's so right. They're synonymous. So anyway, uh, that's that. Let's move on. Guess what, Jay? What Riz? We have another new segment for you yes today. i love today this is the yeah, best day this, this is some this is some episode man now this is a segment that we're going to be bringing back it looks like two more times before this election maybe and then yeah, maybe and then hopefully not again for another three years after that yeah. but this is a segment that's sort of a limited series if you will reserved for political debate nights and this segment is called cut me mick Okay, debate night was last night. It's all anyone is talking about today. When I sat down this morning to put my thoughts about it to paper, I was just kind of depressed about the whole thing and frankly sort of burnt out on it, even though I haven't even talked about it yet. That's what happens in this Trump economy, Riz. It's it's true. So before we go any further, let me play a quick clip of CNN's Jake Tapper that I think can speak for both myself and Justin here in that it sums up how we all felt about the debate last night. Tapper, go. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. That was the worst debate I have ever seen. In fact, it wasn't even a debate. It was a disgrace. Um, And it's primarily because of President Trump. You know what, Jay? Yeah. Tapper doesn't go far enough. Here's a better reaction from the movie Billy Madison. (laughs) Mr. Madison... What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That clip right there basically expresses how I felt after the uh, after the debate was finished. I'll so, ra- that. yeah, rather than give my personal take on the debate, I actually think this is one of those scenarios where everything has already been said by all the talking heads. You've probably been listening to it all day. So I pinned a few 
whom I wholeheartedly agree with on their assessment. I'm going to read those and then let Jay fill in any of the blanks here. So uh, John Lovett from uh, Pod Save America again said, quote, America did lose tonight. We've lost every day since since this disgrace of a person took office. The tragedy isn't seeing it plainly. Let people see. The tragedy is how often this obvious truth is obscured by people who know it but think it's their job to lie or be obtuse about it. Perfect statement. I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, Nate Silver, who is an impartial polling analyst at 538. Uh, by the way, I think I mentioned him last week and called him Nate Cohen. Uh, that's another person. So uh, I meant to say Nate Silver. Uh, correction made. Um, <laughs> he said, quote, I'm not 100% sure I buy the this was the worst debate ever framing. Biden wasn't especially sharp, particularly in the first 30 minutes of the debate, but he was fine. He wasn't the guy who was constantly interrupting or who refused to commit to respecting the results of the election or who ducked the question when he was asked to denounce white supremacy. And he wasn't the guy who needed a win since he's ahead in the polls. That's very much true. Yep. Uh, next, Frank Luntz uh, did a focus group after the debate. Frank Luntz is a Republican communications consultant and pundit. Uh, the words most commonly used to describe Trump from the focus group were arrogant, crackhead, and un-American. <laughs> wow. Uh, the words most commonly used to describe Biden were better than expected, more professional, restraint and compassion, predictable, coherent, leader, and neutral when to uh to clear the bar all you have to do is show up and breathe it's, it's very pretty true. easy to exceed yeah. expectations yeah and finally my favorite summation of the night came from ben shapiro who said quote the debate was like the worst episode of jerry springer ever because nobody got hit with a chair and we didn't find out who the father was at the end <laughs> That is my favorite take of the night. Yeah, that's so good. I will. I, I want to just print that out and put that on my wall. Yeah. So uh, all in all, I was embarrassed for the country. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought the debate was really counterproductive. I thought Wallace was a terrible moderator, just yeah. awful. Uh, I thought Trump was the greatest disgrace in American history. Not surprising. But I also thought Biden was lackluster and mm-hmm. kind of like a deer in headlights. Jay, did I leave anything out? And then I want to hear, I, I, I want to ask a question about how Biden could have done better. Okay. But let me, tell me first what you think. I'm going to repeat pr- pretty much everything you just said. So yeah. I, I sort of called this when we, we recently did the podcast, uh, The Rage of the Age. And I said, you know, you would ask me what the prediction was or the, the host had asked me. And I said, this was going to be very embarrassing for America. I couldn't have been more right. And, you know, as, every, as literally everyone has said already, the real loser here is America. That is really my assessment. It was an embarrassing showing from everyone. Trump was a bully and wouldn't denounce white supremacists. Biden wasn't the adult in the room and wouldn't answer either way about ending the filibuster and packing the Supreme Court. Chris got way more involved than he said he would, even past telling Trump to stop talking. They were all of them all over the place. It was a supreme and massive, saddening and depressing loss for the country. And I hope the next one either doesn't happen or they can (laughs) find a way to mute their microphones or like lower them when they shouldn't be talking like at the Oscars. Yeah. That's my assessment. Yeah, yeah, we basically have this. We are we are down the middle and 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 concise on this one, and we we, are. we completely agree. Yeah. yeah, I have yet to find someone who doesn't. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Someone was like, "It was great." Yeah, um, you'd have to be an absolute masochistic, crazy idiot, but... or, or Canadian, <laughs> right? But I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, like how would I have dealt with Trump if I were on that stage? Because it's it's not easy. 
mainly because he Trump is constantly interrupting and then he confuses his debate he's opponent. A bully. It's how he's won every debate or won. It's how uh, well, he's gotten yeah. past every debate that he's ever been in. Yeah, it, I mean, bullies. it's a tricky, right? It's a tricky thing to have to deal with. And I think Biden was sort of like, you know, like we both both went to summer camp. Juke camp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> remember at summer camp, the lake was always like freezing. Always freezing. They yeah, kept always it that freezing. way on purpose, yeah. I feel like. And when you jump in for like a minute, it, it would actually kind of take your breath away and yeah. you couldn't breathe right. Yes. And I think that's a good analogy for what it's like to debate Trump. It's like jumping in an icy cold lake. Yeah, you know, it, Shout out to Cat Winnedu. Demeanor- Right, exactly. His his demeanor is so shocking that it sort of throws everyone for a loop and yes. actually almost paralyzes or stuns the opponent. Like mm-hmm. they're stunned yeah. because no one's ever seen anything like that. And it's just so jarring. But, you know, I think from the perspective, uh, for, uh, for, or I should say from my perspective, the best way to get under Trump's skin and to break him down a little bit is to embarrass him and to demean him and almost treat him like a child. Like when I'm talking to my wife, and my daughter's interrupting us. I have to be like, you know, sweetie, the adults are talking. If you need to get our attention, could you please say excuse me? Yeah. You know, I I think I would have done a similar thing with Trump, as crazy as that sounds. Like, like I would start talking, and every time he interrupted me, I'd be like, Donald, didn't mommy ever teach you right. that when two adults are talking, you have to say excuse me when you want to say something of That'd your be own? So great. Like that would be that would be a great tactic to take because it would demean him and embarrass him, and he'd probably shut the f up. I, I think his he- either that or his head would explode. Right, exactly. Love to see like, it. And I keep doing it over and over. I'd be like, honey, I already yeah. warned you about this. <laughs> the adults are talking now. You'll have your time in a second when they yeah. point to you. You know, just tr- treat him like a little child. Yeah. You know, but anyway. We really we, we don't really want to go into the substantive substantive things that were discussed well, at the debate much. because yeah honestly there, there really wasn't much of anything so you can Google that if you want to have fun with that uh, if you've you've been watching the news today the media is going nuts over the fact that Trump didn't denounce this group the Proud Boys yeah we tried it, to walk it back today. <laughs> Right. Which, uh, the Proud Boys, I guess, are an alt-right white supremacist group. And uh, just a quick sidebar here, Jay. Do you mind if I go on a little sidebar? Sidebar away. Okay. This whole Proud Boys versus Antifa thing. Is this West Side f- story? It's color war, Riz. Okay. I didn't tell you. <laughs> what is, it like, is this like the, the sharks and the jets? Are we going to start like. like doing choreographed like routines <laughs> in, in Portland, like dances? Like, what the hell are you people doing? Yeah. What is wrong with you? You have nothing better to do? I've never made a sign. Have you ever made a sign, Jay? Maybe for rest. When I went to go to wrestling, I might have made a sign. <laughs> I have never sat down at my kitchen table with a piece of cardboard and wrote out my feelings like <laughs> i hate trump then stapled that piece of cardboard to a stick took the stick in my car drove <laughs> it down to a city center somewhere yeah. mm-hmm. then got a, you know on a weekday on a yeah. work day yeah. got out of the car and then marched around for six hours expressing the sentiments that are already on the sign. I have never done that, and I will never do that. I don't know anyone who's done that, and I'm really upset that people do this. Yes, okay, I'm with you. I mean, have you it. ever known anyone? Who, I mean, we know a lot of liberals, you and I. We live yeah. in California. Do yeah. you know anyone who engages, who, like, belongs to these militia groups? Not a single that one. get no. together on the weekends, and they're like, Ooh, wearing wearing their stupid gas mask. No, the, I know the groups I know about, they go and they talk about. You know, we talk about Ronald Reagan for like five hours a weekend. <laughs> exactly. Like that's about it. <laughs> and I know 
this is down the middle and we're supposed to be sensitive to all people's perspectives here. But no, honestly, here. We, we could lose this I group. I think we're all right. The, you know, yeah. and, and, and again, I don't want to talk about, I'm not talking about the sort of yearly activists who go yeah. to like the March for Life or no, no, go to different. the Women's March or the Million Man March or whatever march you do. <laughs> I'm talking about the everyday activists yeah. who are like putting on their gas masks every day and starting fires and doing all yeah, these- they got bull- shields and, and batons. Right, she- and, where uh, do you get this stuff? What apparently- are you Apparently a U-Haul truck. It's insane. And, and they're doing it on the weekend. You yeah. have nothing <laughs> better weekend. to do on the weekend. Put a game on. Get uh, a beer. Smoke a joint. Get yeah, laid. Find a hobby. Do, right. Do anything else. And that's why I find it bizarre that we have to have this conversation about Antifa and and the Proud, the Proud Boys. Boys and, yeah. and, and as we've talked about before, these are such small little groups in a country of 350 yeah, we million say it all the time. freaking people. That's right. And and they they take up so much oxygen. I know, it's if all, it I was were, all today. It, it, Right, and if I, if I were Joe Biden, I would just say like they are always like, "Will you will you uh, denounce Antifa?" I would be like, "You know what? This is America. You're a le- freedom of assembly, freedom of protest. Stop lighting but, stuff on fire. Right. Stop lighting stuff on fire, and also get a life. All yeah. these people. Would he lose? He would win walking away if he said when that. Would you I lose any votes? People- Riz, it's 40 people in a, in a right. basement. And, and these people they don't, don't vote. Most of them, yeah, they're not even registered to vote. A lot of them have criminal records, we found out. True. So they can't even vote, even if they were registered. Yeah, no, it's insane. What, it, what are you thinking? Let, let's just get it all out on the table. I love it. Let's just say, you know what? These people need to sit down on the weekend and leave the to me okay just all i need you guys to do is vote for me i have this i don't need you guys to go down to downtown la with your signs talking about how crazy things are like get a life stop this whole thing i'm upset now we got to move on okay Okay. all right (laughs) so in closing this segment i want to make a quick point about how other countries see that sorry display of American politics that we saw last night. Oh, boy. So BBC News had a piece today outlining what other countries around the world thought about the debate. Uh, The UK Times wrote, the clearest loser from the presidential uh, from the first presidential debate between Trump and Biden was America. The UK Guardian wrote the rest of the world and future historians will presumably look at what happened last night and weep. The French newspaper Liberation wrote chaotic, childish and grueling. A German paper. You know when you're getting that from the French, it's a problem. Exactly, exactly. A German paper that I can't pronounce the name of wrote, a TV duel like a car accident. (laughs) I like that one. Another German paper uh, uh, wrote, uh, most importantly, it showed that America has a president whose behavior stands out uh, and who lacks self-control, but that's not exactly news. (laughs) In Italy, La Repubblica wrote, Never had American politics sunk so low as it did last night. The Times of India wrote, the U.S. embarrassed itself before the world for 100 minutes, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I know a lot of you might not care about what other countries think, but this is also one of the many repercussions of having a president in office uh, who has the character of the, of of somebody like Donald Trump. So it was a sad day. What else can I say? Did, yeah. I, did I leave anything out, Jay? No, sir, you certainly did not. Okay. So given that there was nothing that was fun about last night's debate, let's do a, a quick game show segment to cheer you guys up. Jay, what are we doing? This game show is called, Is This a Quote from the First Presidential Debate or Just a Thing I Made Up Out of Thin Air? <laughs> Thank you.
All right, let's go. I'm pumped. I'm ready. I got my thinking cap on. Let's do this. All right, you were really good last time, so I'm going to try and fool you. You ready? I was, I was born ready, Jay. All right. Is this a quote from the first presidential debate or just a thing I made up? He's elected to the next election. He's elected to the next election. That's got to be something DT said. So, no, it wasn't Donald Trump, but you're right. It was from the debate. That was Joe Biden. All right. I'm one for one then. I didn't get the guy right, but, you know, I'm one for one. That's fine. Still counts. We're counting it. All right. Second quote. Is this a quote from the first presidential debate or just a thing that I wrote down and made up today off off the top of my head? We are eliminating the China virus. It's their fault, and we're getting rid of the China virus. That's from the debate. That's wrong. Really? It is not from the debate. So in this debate, interestingly enough, I read the entire transcript and wanted to dive off of, uh, you know, the balcony yeah. I was sitting on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Donald Trump only said China plague during this debate and not China virus. Interesting. China yeah, plague. I thought it was interesting, too. Next quote. Is this a quote from the first presidential debate or just a thing that I'm going to, you know, maybe make up? Yeah. I'm here standing facing you, old buddy. You made that up. Incorrect. That is Joe really? Biden. Wow. Well, just that's. I told you, I made him uh, harder. I'm, I'm, I'm. What am I? One correct, two wrong. Yeah. 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 One and two. One. Okay. Let's go. All right. Number four. We got five to five and a bonus. Okay. Is this a quote from the first presidential debate or a thing I wrote down five seconds ago? No, your son is the one with the problem. That is from the debate. Incorrect. No really? one said that. Yep. Got very wow. close to it though. So, this goes to show how, how this goes to show how <laughs> much attention I was paying out. to the. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I literally I couldn't even. I can't believe people wa- made it through that whole thing. It I know crazy, it is but. extraordinary. Uh, all right, fifth and final, and then we got a bonus. Okay. All right. So here's the last quote. Is this a quote from the first presidential debate or a thing I wrote down earlier today? Well, you're certainly going to socialist. That's from the debate. That's right. Tell him what he's won. That is from the debate. Good job. (laughs) We got a bonus for you. Okay. Is this a quote from the first presidential debate or just a thing that I made up today that, you know, everyone's thinking? Okay. This is not going to end well. Um, that is definitely from the debate. Donald Trump saying what all of us are thinking. Yeah. Good job, Riz. <laughs> did a great job. Those were not easy. That was fantastic. So, uh, I didn't win, though, did I? You know what? It doesn't really matter because we're all we are losers. all losers. We are all losers <laughs> in this right. one. We, you took the words right out of my mouth. And, uh... All right, guys, home stretch here. It's time for the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. All right, the topic of the day today is mail in voting and voter fraud. But to give a little context first on why this is the topic of the day, we're going to inject one of our most popular segments into our topic of the day segment, sort of, Whoa. sort of a bonus segment, Jay. I love it. A segment within a, a segment, segment within a segment. This is Bonehead of the Week. So once again, the Bonehead of the Week award goes to two-time winner and still champion, your very own president, Donald J. Trump. 
Wow, what a shock. What a win. Unbelievable. Unreal. So now last week, we saw Donald Trump on multiple occasions refusing to say whether or not there would be a peaceful transfer of power if he loses. Now, this is obviously very good for the country, isn't it, Jay? Yeah, I mean, this is a thing he loves to do. And when someone asks him a straightforward question, he's like, I don't know. And then everyone says, he's just being crazy again. But this was really very, very, very dangerous thing that he said. Yes, so we'll get to that. But first, this is what that sounded like if you're living under a rock. Win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? And there has been rioting in Louisville. There's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, no, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better okay. than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. Mr. President, the second question is, will you... Please, go ahead. You asked the question. Why won't you... Okay, so basically, he'll only commit to a peaceful transferal of power if he wins. Great job, dude. Uh, and I see a lot of bad faith arguments on the right saying, well, Hillary Clinton is telling Joe Biden not to concede as well. And it's like, yeah, she's doing that because it is widely believed by the Democrats that Trump is going to do everything in his power to steal this election. So it's yet another example of Republicans forcing Democrats to take a certain position and then accusing them of hypocrisy. So I would also be remiss if I didn't play you the typical Ben Shapiro reaction to Trump's comments that uh, you just heard. Uh, Mind you, this is the intellectual conservative. And that sounded like this. Now, again, did Trump say a dumb, bad thing here? Yes. Again, no president should say anything other than, of course, if I lose the election and it's legitimately held, then I will peacefully transfer power. That's always the obvious answer. There's no excuse for him to say anything else. Also, he says dumb crap all the time, and no one should take this seriously because it's not serious. It is not a serious thing. This is not a serious answer from a particularly serious person. End of story. Okay, so I know uh, we've been, we, we've been bringing we've been bringing that uh, talking point back for several episodes now because this this seems to be the sort of intellectual uh, conservative view on this because I think they can't come right out and be like I I unendorse Donald Trump and I'm not going to vote for him. It sounds like he's talking jobs. about like Steve Martin or something. Yeah. I mean, a, not a very serious guy. You're talking about the freaking right. president. Right. Of course. But this is their this is their way out. It's sort of like, well, we don't take him seriously. We like that he moved the embassy, Jay. We like that part. So it I doesn't mean. matter what he says. So he could get up. He could literally get to the podium and be like, you know what? Because I felt like I was going to lose, I'm going to direct my military to bomb both California and New York and see how that goes. Then I'll never lose. And, you know, (laughs) there could be like military getting ready to to go on that operation for Trump. And guys like Ben Shapiro, the supposed intelligent uh, conservative commentators, would be still saying, well, come on, he can't take him seriously. I just I just find it really funny that this is the excuse. I mean, there there have to be conversations. That we're not privy to somewhere where someone decided we can't we can't go over this line because, you know, you hear from Ben Shapiro and we talked about it earlier. He said negative things about Trump's performance in the debate. 
You yeah. know, so we know he's capable of it. We knew this happened during the first election. What is he doing and thinking that these are just normal things to say for a president? I think it's just his it, it, it's and it's not just him. It's a lot of these sort of, uh, you know, again, intellectual conservative commentators, yeah. not the Hannity's of the world who are like the best thing well, ever. Just back but, it, yeah, right. The intellectual ones. I think it's their way out to be like, well, we don't take him seriously. It's a very interesting thing, and it should be studied for many years to come. But yeah. with that said, uh, Trump has been beating this drum for a long time now, uh, that there's going to be massive voter fraud in this upcoming election. It is worth noting that Trump said the same thing in 2016 when we weren't talking about mail-in voting, uh, and he said it about in-person voting at that point, uh, how there was going to be all this fraud going on in the country, blah, blah, blah. Uh, He even called the whole election rigged, if you remember. Uh, He also claimed that he actually won California after the election and that there were millions of illegal votes cast. Of course, uh, he did this without any evidence, as usual, and the Republicans had to quickly justify his comments. So they put together a commission headed by Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach uh, to get to the bottom of all of this. The commission was then quietly disbanded less than a year into his first term. As the commission itself put it, the result of the investigation came up glaringly empty. That's a quote. (laughs) But that hasn't stopped Inspector Gadget over here from (laughs) claiming that millions of votes are being cast fraudulently in the United States election. So obviously, the focus on mail-in voting has come to the fore recently because of the pandemic and because it's probably a wise idea for, for all of us to not be standing in line for hours on election day shoulder to shoulder, right? I mean, you know, we have a health crisis yeah, going on about now right. right now every state handles mail-in voting differently but my buddy jay has a buzz history prepare for us on the history of mail-in voting jay get us buzz brother buzz history. hello and welcome to buzzed history today we're going to talk about an extremely relevant topic mail-in voting also referred to as postal voting or vote by mail Mail-in voting is a form of absentee ballot in the United States in which a ballot is mailed to the home of a registered voter who fills it out and returns it by postal mail or drops it off in person into a secure drop box or at a voting center. As far as the Constitution is concerned, there is no step-by-step guide included in its text. Article 1, Section 4 states that it's up to each state to determine, quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections. The Founding Fathers all voted by voice, in public, which stopped at the early 19th century. While the number of people eligible to vote in that era was low and primarily composed of landowning white males, turnout stuck at around 85%. The first paper ballots appeared in the early 19th century and were originally just blank pieces of paper. By the mid-1800s, the pendulum swung in the opposite direction. Political parties themselves printed tickets with the names of every candidate pre-filled along party lines. It wasn't until 1888 that New York State and Massachusetts adopted pre-printed ballots with the names of all the candidates. However, absentee voting was in full swing by then. The first widespread instance of absentee voting in the United States occurred during the Civil War. In 1864, outside of the White House, President Abraham Lincoln spoke the words, We cannot have free government without elections, and if the rebellion could force us to forego or postpone the national election, it might fairly claim to have already conquered and ruined us. Due to the number of Union soldiers who couldn't vote, the president encouraged states to permit them to cast their ballots from the field. The precedent for this was set in the War of 1812, where Pennsylvania and New Jersey in 1815 granted absentee balloting for the military. In the 1864 presidential election between Lincoln and George McClellan, 
19 union states changed their laws to allow soldiers to vote absentee. Some states permitted soldiers to name a proxy to vote for them back at home, while others created polling sites in the soldiers' camps. Somewhere around 150,000 out of 1 million soldiers voted in the election, and President Lincoln carried a massive 78% of the military vote. By the late 1800s, several states extended the offer of absentee voting to civilians with an accepted excuse, such as distance or illness. With the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870 and the 19th Amendment in 1920, the country saw an expansion in the number of eligible voters. But it wasn't until World War II that absentee voting would be propelled back into the national spotlight. With both FDR and Harry Truman encouraging military voting, coupled with the Soldier Voting Act of 1942, which officially permitted all members of the military overseas to send their ballots from abroad, over 3.2 million absentee ballots were cast during the war. The act was amended in 1944 and expired at the war's end. The next few decades saw legislation changes in order to make voting easier for servicemen and women and their families, including the Federal Voting Assistance Act of 1955, the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act in 1986, and the Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment, or MOVE Act, signed by President Obama in 2009. While most historians cite California as the first state to offer no-excuse absentee voting in the late 1970s, Michael Hanmer, research director of the Center for Democracy and Civic Engagement at the University of Maryland, says it was actually Washington State that made the switch in 1974. In 1996, astronaut John Blaha was not able to vote in the November 1996 election due to his mission beginning before ballots were finalized and lasting beyond Election Day. As a result, in 1997, Texas amended its election statutes to allow voting from outer space. In 1998, voters in Oregon passed an initiative requiring that all elections be conducted by mail, reducing staff requirements, saving money, and increasing voter turnout. In 2011, the Washington State Legislature passed a law requiring all counties to conduct vote-by-mail elections. In 2013, Colorado did the same, followed by Utah in 2014, California in 2016, and as of July 2020, five states, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, and Washington, hold elections almost entirely by mail and postal voting is an option in 33 states and the District of Columbia. Other states allow postal voting in certain circumstances, although some of those restrictions are being relaxed due to COVID-19. Each of these states has found that this shift has significantly increased voter turnout. Now, you might be wondering, especially considering the upcoming election, doesn't mail-in voting carry with it a greater risk of fraud? Well, believe it or not, there are relatively few known instances of mail-in voter fraud, with one database finding 491 cases of absentee ballot fraud from 2000 to 2012, a period in which billions of votes were cast. Election offices rejected 67,000 ballots in the 2018 election and 92,000 in the 2016 election because mismatched signatures led officials to believe postal ballots had been forged. Doing a deeper dive into 2016, 318,728 ballots, which amounts to 1% of those submitted, were rejected. Some of these reasons were the as-mentioned non-matching signature, 23.1% of ballots missed the deadline, 20% had no signature at all, 3% had no witness signature, 1.5% for the voter being deceased, 1.3% for the voter also having voted in person, and 1.1% for being a ballot by a first-time voter without proper identification. From 2003 to 2018, 15 local elections results were thrown out in tight elections based in part on absentee voting fraud. However, Richard Hansen, a professor at the UC Irvine School of Law, maintains that, quote, problems are extremely rare in the five states that rely primarily on vote by mail. 
Earlier this month, the Homeland Security Department issued an intelligence bulletin asserting that Russia is likely to continue amplifying criticisms of vote by mail and shifting voting processes amidst the COVID-19 pandemic to undermine public trust in the electoral process. Unfortunately, mail-in voting takes several days to deliver and count ballots. This tosses out the traditional election night news coverage in which the results are delivered within hours after the polls close, not like we were getting it this time anyway. And this has been another Buzzed History. Buzz History. Wow, Jay, that was a, I think that actually was my favorite Buzz History you ever did. I really learned a lot. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's a lot of information in there. Uh, you guys should actually go back and listen to it again, because what what we really did learn is that, there, number one, there is a precedence for all of this. Uh, That's right. It's not something new, like Trump is trying to make it seem, this mail-in no. voting. Uh, and number two, there's been very, very little, very few instances of of fraud or even mistakes happening. Yeah. So uh, surprise for you guys, we are bringing back our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman, to discuss his thoughts and research he's personally done on voter fraud and mail-in voting. We wanted to get uh, uh, someone with, with legal expertise and his opinion on this. So Clay, welcome back to the show, ma'am. Hey, it's good to be back with you guys. You always mention my legal expertise, but I'm, I'm not sure that has anything to do with this. I'm just really good at if someone tells me they're a lawyer i listen (laughs) to them more intently so that's good that we're doing that yeah it is it is good yeah my goodness okay well then yeah then 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 cut the pushback from from the whole thing okay yeah because i'm gonna i want i want to run with this i want to run with this so let's let's talk a little bit about uh about this whole thing i know you've done a lot of research into this matter i remember just a few weeks ago you sort of texted me and you were like you guys got to talk about this issue because uh there's really no there there um, so tell me what you found out. Yeah, well, you know, I started looking into this because, as you all have discussed here, it just dominates the airwaves with this president, perhaps more than any other. And obviously, the concerns with COVID people, you know, with people going out to vote and things. And I just got to wondering, you know, CNN and Twitter and all these people say all the time, there's just no evidence of this. It's been proven time and time again. And I'm like, well, I feel like I should test that <laughs> instead of just accepting that that's, that's true. Fair. And so I decided to look into it. So that, that's, that's kind of what I've been up to. Um, but it's, it's an interesting question, I think, because as a matter of logic, just solely as a matter of logic, it makes sense that mail ballots would perhaps have greater instances of fraud at first glance, because, uh, you know, you just, it just raises issues that don't come up when you're dealing with voting in person. You can't see a person doing right. that. Who, know, who knows what they do with their ballot? You know, I mean, there's just, uh, there's a chain of custody problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm letting this go. It's going off into thin air and I don't know what's happening to it versus mm-hmm. I'm dropping this into the box myself. Exactly. Well, and I've, I've heard right-wingers even make the claim that most people, most post office workers are leftists. Like I literally heard what? someone on Fox News say this. Oh so, so there's a, there's an automatic disadvantage to the GOP because the, the postman can be opening things and changing them. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, Rob, I'm not going to address yeah. that particular <laughs> point it's ridiculous. here this yeah, evening, yeah. if it's all right yeah, with you guys. Um, but the, the important thing, though, to focus on all of this, and it's just it's such a sad state of affairs that we have to reaffirm this on this show. But, you know, more people voting is good. And that's has to be true for both sides, no matter how you feel. Yeah. If you if you actually believe in this process and you believe in this country, more people voting is good and we should be empowering people to Absolutely. vote. It's more democratic. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, especially when, you know, our man Mitch McConnell talks about how the will of the people voting in the Senate uh, gives them the ability to take away a power from a president. But, you know, that's that's old news now. Right. Sorry. Right. Uh, so, 
you know, the, so the real question then becomes in, you know, is, is the risk of voter fraud and specifically mail-in voting for our purposes here so great as to justify all of the GOP hand-wringing on this issue? Go on. Um, and, you know, if, if life and voting policy is a cost-benefit analysis, if you will, then what's the right balance to strike? Yeah, right. And the data shows that um, measured by what we've actually been able to uh, find in the investigations of past mail-in and, and, uh, and even in-person voting is that the, the risk of fraud is basically non-existent. And so um, I will leave it to the listeners to draw their own conclusions uh, after this discussion as to whether Trump says the things he says because he has done the research and cares deeply about our democratic process, or if he bloviates about election fraud in order to undermine our democratic processes ahead of an election he is likely to lose. So you guys, you guys can just listen up here and, and you can figure out what you think. I have a, I have a question you know? before you even get into it. You know, Trump talks a lot about these and he amplifies and then the right wing media amplifies these sort of outlier cases. Like there's this one we recently heard about where they found like nine or ten ballots yeah, in a, a dumpster can. somewhere yeah. in a trash can and they happen to all be for Trump. Um, but I think our, our, the conclusion that you are drawing is that in a country of 350 million people with millions of votes being casted in every state, this is still those are those outlier situations are very, very, very uncommon. Correct. Yeah, I, I'd say I'm, I'm going to make two broad points in all of this. Mm. I'd say Com- one combining before you yeah. even do that. I think yeah. it's important to cast this in a light. There's a comparison with in-person voting. So I'm sure that in-person voter fraud happens as well in circumstances, right? right? And, and if in-person mm-hmm. voter, v- voter fraud happens in circumstances and mail-in voter fraud happens in circumstances, then this is going to happen no matter what, is my point. Right. And on that topic, Jay, I mean, what Trump was claiming in 2016 before we ever before he ever even knew what the words mail in voting mean meant, um, what he was claiming was that illegal people who who weren't citizens um, were were voting because a lot of these states and a lot of people don't even realize this. I I realized that my wife didn't even know this until recently when I told her that a lot of states don't have voter ID laws. Um, I'm actually on the fence about the voter ID thing, um, and we could talk about that a little bit. But in California, uh, they do check. They have a way of checking. You have to give them your address, but you don't yeah. have to show an ID. So so that opened uh, opens up a lot of conspiracies that there's, you know, in a state like California, where there are a ton of undocumented workers, the idea that they're they're going in droves to the polls and voting when they're not even citizens of, the, uh, of America. And and what this commission that put together found that that Trump put together found was that that wasn't happening. Like uh, the the migrant workers from the Hispanic workers, they, they aren't voting in mass right. numbers. It, it, there's like there's like literally a, a handful of cases that they found uh, over the last like decade or something. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I'm going to talk a little bit about, about all of those things Great. you okay. just mentioned, yep. Rob, only, only a little bit, okay. uh, but there's got, got some stuff for Let's you, do it. uh, got some stuff for you on that. But yeah, the two broad points I would take from this discussion are one that if you look at the data and you look at all the studies and there are many, yes, it's very, very, very low instances, both in terms of in-person, you know, impersonation fraud and mail-in fraud. And the second point I would say is that, um, even if you would, were to push back on some of this data and say, well, that's still only the people that they caught. There's got to be people that they didn't catch. Um, yes, that is true. But A, this is the best data we have to go off of, and it's robust. And so we should heed its lessons. And secondly, as we'll get into some specifics here, um, 
these numbers are so statistically insignificant that even if you multiplied them by a very high factor, you'd still be at a minuscule number that wouldn't justify forcing people to go out uh, in the situation right now where they're going to possibly contract COVID. And I'm assuming, although I don't have the data on this, that uh, a lot of states are having reduced in-person polling places because the state budgets are so screwed. Yeah, right. I'm sure that's yeah. true. You know, so hit, hit uh, us with some numbers, Clyde. Let's hear what you got. Okay, let's roll. You know, uh, So there's a lot of data here. That's the important thing. There's so much data out there on this. And this comes from think tanks, from academics, from state governments, and from the federal government. They've all crawled inside this question pretty much over the last 20 years. And as technology's gotten better and data sharing and methodology have become more sophisticated, it's, it's just improving all the time. Uh, what really kicked this off actually was the disputed election in 2000, Bush v. Gore, uh, that got Congress focused on the potential for uh, chicanery uh, in elections. And actually, the Bush, uh, the Bush run DOJ made investigating and prosecuting voter fraud in the 2002 and 2004 elections a high priority. They organized a special unit focused solely on voter fraud. Uh, and they ended up convicting 24 people in that span, uh, which represented 0.000013% of all ballots cast in those elections. Wow, yeah. That is a good precursor for some of what we're about to hear uh, on the rest of this. So um, I could, we could sit here all night and everyone would be irritated and bored going through a, a number of different studies. And so I'm actually just going to focus on... Um, some of the governmental studies and think tank studies that emanate from the political right, only because the right is the one sort of making the big deal out of this right now. Yeah. As we talked about, this should be a nonpartisan issue, but unfortunately it's not. Uh, but if you look at, um, just briefly, if you look at uh, the homepage of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School, they put out a memo in 2018 compiling something like 18 different books, reports, and studies produced over the last 10 years looking at all kinds of scenarios particular states, nationwide numbers, groups of states. Those uh, studies I'm talking about now were focused more on impersonation fraud right. as opposed to mail-in mm -hmm. fraud. But um, on the low end, several of these studies found zero instances of fraud in the data sets they looked at. And um, one of the, perhaps the, the gold standard, uh, the Brennan Center's report entitled The Truth About Voter Fraud, looked very closely at three states, Missouri, Wisconsin, and New Jersey, because in the elections that they looked at, uh, local politicians were were harping on voter fraud issues particularly, um, they found incident rates between 0.0003% and 0.00025% wow. in terms of actual fraud happening, yeah. uh, which led to the wonderful, uh, the wonderful anecdote in the uh, Brennan Center study that uh, someone getting struck by lightning is by far a more frequent occurrence than impersonation fraud oh, right. in American elections. Wow. Uh, so who says academics can't be fun, you know, uh, because that is, because that's great stuff. Yeah. Um, so anyway, moving, moving a little bit then to, uh, to some other stuff, some of which you guys already touched upon. Uh, and so thank you for the intro. Um, but Chris Kobach, uh, he was the Republican secretary of state of Kansas, which isn't exactly a blue state from what I can tell. Um, no, no, he, it isn't. He campaigned hard and went hard in the press, uh, argued to, to state lawmakers that his office needed a special power to prosecute voter fraud. Uh, and he even said at the time, I know personally right now, as I stand here of over a hundred cases of fraud that happened in this state in, in recent years. Uh, he parlayed that as you mentioned, Rob, into a, a larger, uh, a larger assignment from the GOP. We know that Trump always, he always, uh, 
you know, errs on the side of conspiracy. So whenever there's somebody who sort of who chimes in with something that could be a conspiracy, Trump is all on it. Like, yeah, sure, you don't, right. you don't have to prove it. Yeah, exactly. Gets the man's attention. Gets his attention. It gets the man's attention Continue. for sure. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. Oh, of course. No, it's your show. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you do what you got to do, you know? Uh, you know, so uh, after being granted these special powers he sought, uh, he, as the Secretary of State of Kansas, has brought six cases. Four of those have been successful. And what's so interesting, and just this is just a sad matter of a low bar, when the Secretary testified to his colleagues about why he needed these special powers to help this problem, he cited... A review of over 84 million votes cast in 22 other states, which yielded 14 instances of oh fraud God. referred for prosecution. <laughs> or, I'm going to keep hitting you with the point zeros, point zero 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 one seven percent right. fraud oh rate. This is what he used to get right. his power. Yeah. Now, let me, let me interject so again. No one should be surprised that he's brought six cases in this time. Of course. Uh, again, because it is my show. I'm going to interject when I need to here. Um, cool. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I, I've, I've made this case since episode one of this podcast, the, the, the Republicans are just better at politics than the Democrats. Mm-hmm. They are tougher. They 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 come up with angles That's a fact check that, true, Rob. Yes, that, that, that the Democrats couldn't come up with. Do you sort of and, and it's always been, it's been the Republicans for years who have been beating this drum of voter fraud. That you know and what I found interesting in 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 Jay's Buzz history was the fact that the Russians have picked up on this. We know this. We have in we we have actual intelligence now that yeah. is telling us that the Russians take issues like that like this that they know are divisive and they amplify them to you know divide our electorate further so do you think that this is all just a very sort of savvy political move uh you know on behalf of the right um i'd say sure we can call it savvy but i think what it really is is just they have taken a cold hard look at the system as currently constructed and realized that as demographics change um, they've just got to pull out every stop right, sure. to keep a hold of the power that they have. And if that means undermining elections, if it means voter suppression, um, and I know, I know, I know I'm not here to talk about a certain Supreme court case from 2013 <laughs> yeah. that speaks to this yeah, issue, right. but I would just say Shelby County, we can, we can point um, people in that direction. It's, sure. <laughs> it is a central it is a central part, and I think even their strategists would tell you essential part of their strategy going forward that as young people um in particular start to you know, know a bit more about politics by the time they're eighteen by virtue of the internet and as demographics change like in places like Texas, for example, it's an unthinkably red state for our lifetimes, and you know. That might not be the case. Sure, Texas, you know, Arizona, I mean, it's game set Florida, match for them. there's a number of states that yeah, could swing. all of them. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's game set match for the Democrats sure. if, if Texas goes blue right. at some point, right. you know. And so I think they've got to do these things to to keep the process as undemocratic as possible because the way the country looks is moving away from the way they think and the way they believe. Things. Right now, I want to I want to bring up one thing, and you know, I had said this. I'd been pretty vocal about this on social media, and a lot of people disagreed with me. But uh, you know, I'm not a a uh, a paid Democratic strategist or anything. But what I what I my instinct when um, when Trump started really bringing all of this up, my my instinct was first I I, I 
realized right away that the Democrats are going to do what the Democrats do, which is act outraged. And I thought to myself, maybe instead of acting outraged this time, maybe they should call his bluff and be like, you know what? Maybe you're right. It's a pandemic. And this is going to be so, so crazy anyway. So let's call a moratorium on mail-in voting completely in every state for this election, right? Mm -hmm. And have everyone go to the polls. And I know by polling data, Democrats vote by mail-in more and Republicans vote in person more. But I have to believe that in the middle of a pandemic, where old people especially are susceptible, and the you know, the older population is a huge part of Trump's base. Yeah, less people are working as well, so they're not right, going into the right, office. Exactly. That the Republicans would have then said, like, Mr. President, you need to back off this thing because we're going to lose too many votes. Like, what if the Democrats just called his bluff for once rather than acting outrage? How do you think that would have played? I mean, I th- it would have been worth a shot. At least it would have been some kind of p- political strategy, for lack of right. a better and, word, and you that know they could have employed. And I think they would have won because I think Democrats are so fired up for this election. They would have gone to the polls. And you have younger people who are less concerned Mm -hmm. about covid than the older people. Um, And and we know for a fact now there's been reporting that that Trump's inner team was very concerned about him demonizing this mail in thing too hard because there are uh, there is a very large subset of Republican voters who vote by mail. Yeah. So it's it's a very I just think for once, I would love the the Democrats to not do the outrage machine for sure and do the do the strategic. Here's the issue, right? We Mm -hmm. we talk about how politicians should be better. And I believe that. And I think that that's a big cornerstone of our show. But to pretend like politics weren't being enacted on this country from the founding fathers and we can um, i'd love to dive into this on another another episode but it it absolutely was and these are whether you like it or not they are politics as usual this kind of thing does and is happening and for the democrats to get on board with that and enact some strategy would not be the worst thing in the world for them right but i do think also it's a couple of things that I, I imagine are in their minds, and we're all speculating a bit here. Uh, but I think that, <clears throat> one, there is a fear that has run through them since the moment he even announced his candidacy. There has been a fear among the left to, no matter what, we cannot let this person become a normalized part of American society. There has to, even if he says things that are completely crazy. Now, I think that they could do with a little bit less of the arm flapping mm-hmm, yeah. and, and, and the screaming and yelling, but there, I, I think that it's a, it's a consistent philosophy of when he does something crazy, make a big deal out of it because people have to know it's a big deal. Right. And let's not ever make any mistake that this is just another present. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing about it is that, and this has probably been part of their diabolical scheme from the start. Uh, they are being I mean, the GOP. The GOP. Yeah. That from the outset, Trump has encouraged his supporters and his people to not take it all that seriously. And, you know, gosh, why are, why are they making us wear masks? And it's just like the flu. And meanwhile, um, the Democrats have in some ways, I think, overdone right. it yeah. with mm-hmm. the help of CNN in terms of just how dangerous this all is. And we need to shut down the economy forever and blah, blah, blah. And so um, I think that the bet the Democrats were perhaps placing is that Trump's people are going to go out and vote for him, A, because they're committed zealots, 
and B, because they've been conditioned to understand that the virus isn't that big a deal. Whereas there's going to be more people who would tend to vote Democrat who are going to say, well, look, I've been watching the news. This thing's going to kill me if I step outside my door. Right, right. I'm not going to get out there. Uh, and, and that probably, as you said, Rob, the Democrats are fired up. That point I just made probably only applies to sort of the undecided swing voters. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, those votes matter. Those are the tough ones sure. to get. Cool. So I think what we what we have concluded on this segment is that uh, you guys don't have to worry about voter fraud. You're, uh, the voting system in America is very, very safe. It's safer from what I've heard, um, from what I've researched, uh, than in most other countries. Uh, we have a, a, a very secure system. Is there anything that either you guys want to add before we close this out? Well, I do want to give uh, the people what they want a little bit here. Uh, on, on a couple of more just objective stats okay. that goes into, that go into this. All right, let's do it. Um, and particularly as to mail-in voting, I'm going to look at this in part through the lens of the all capital letters now, guys, the heritage foundations, election fraud database. And for those who don't know, the heritage foundation is a deeply conservative foundation that has, uh, trained many, a, uh, Supreme court justice at this point, right? Yeah, it's been uh, it's it's a think tank that's been around for like I think forty eight, forty seven years, right. something like that. Um, and they uh, are often what is cited by people with microphones in their faces uh, on the right talking about uh, voter fraud. For you know, well, look, this is a real problem. Check out the database that the Heritage Center, uh, the Heritage Foundation, has uh, compiled. So. Um, the data is heavier in the last 20 years, but if you go look at the database itself, the first instance of voter fraud, as in first as an earliest in time that they have, is from 1982. Um, but whichever year you use, whether it's 82 or 2000, um, they have compiled roughly 1,300 instances of voter fraud. Imagine how many millions and millions and millions, if not billions, of ballots have been sure. cast. Yeah. yeah, since 1982 yeah. or even 2000, yeah, that's pretty crazy. The best they can do, they've got 1,300. Right. Um, the uh, the 2016 presidential election, presidential election in particular, um, they've got data on the five vote by mail states currently. Uh, you know, Utah, Washington, Hawaii, Colorado, and Oregon. Um, with respect to um, Utah, Hawaii, and Colorado, there are no instances of, of mail-in or even absentee fraud on the Heritage Center, uh, on the Heritage Foundation database. They've got two from Oregon and six from Washington. Right. So, Pretty incredible. Again, yeah. I just don't think we're getting so, that much. So and then one oh, final, one final stat for no you. because no chats. Yeah, there's no chats. No chats, yeah. One, one final stat for you, and then we'll get off the math. Uh, this, is, this is just a fun one. Um, so, um, if you isolate just the last 20 years, and then you isolate just either mail-in ballot fraud or absentee ballot fraud, you get to 204 instances. In that uh, time period, there were roughly 250 million votes cast by mail in that wow. time. That is one six millionth of one percent. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And this is the giant problem. Yeah. yeah. That we've got Bill Barr and Donald Trump in all caps talking about how the Democrats are going to steal the election. And it's actually right. really important, mm -hmm. this, this here, that this, is good stuff. this isn't just these people. This isn't just these no. people. Mm -hmm. Like, you often refer to the Daily Wire and the people there as, you know, the, the intellectual, you know, conservatives, right. or whatever you want to call them, you know. 
Michael Knowles is on his show. Oh, yeah. Saying the words, the Democrats are trying to steal this election mm-hmm. with, with mail-in fraud. And this is what we're talking about. No one over there and takes this Michael is the kind Knowles of thing. Anyway. Yeah, it's true. Michael, no- <laughs> Michael, Michael, Michael Knowles is sort of the comedian in the group. But yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I see. But, you know, so this is, but this, think about this, yeah. though. You've got all, you've, you've got just no objective data. And the GOP is insisting we have to act upon this. We have to worry about it. Yeah. You contrast that to climate change. I know, right? They're still not convinced. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> still not so in closing, let me, let me ask you a question here. Because we know, I think we know for sure now. And this, there's going to be a constitutional crisis on our hands here. Because we know that Donald Trump is going to claim the entire entire election is fraudulent. I mean, that, that I think we could safely say that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. What do you guys, what is your, both your opinions, taking your personal partisan hats off of how the Democrats should handle this if that indeed happens? And his base believes him. There's only one way, in my opinion, to handle this. You got to take it to in the way our constitution is designed. You have to take it to the court system and the Supreme Court has to yet again, unfortunately, weigh in here. And if the result still isn't accepted by our president, then he needs to be forcibly removed, period. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's that complicated a question. Okay. It's, I mean, it's you, you do everything you can to let the democratic process work. And then, you know, if you got to bring in the military, you bring yeah. in the military. Right. But really, you know, regardless of what Chuck Schumer tearfully says and uh, when, when people talk to him about it, I don't care if it's Amy Coney Barrett or if it's whoever it is, as we've just discussed here over the last half hour. I mean, I will I will take I will litigate that right, case. Right. If the case that the that Donald Trump is going to try to bring is that it is so obvious that this was a fraudulent election and it's all fraud and it's not legitimate and blah blah blah. Like yeah, I will have, he'll he'll have evidence or not. Yeah, I will litigate that case and thankfully it won't be me litigating that right. case. It'll be <laughs> The Elias character who, uh, who who does so much legal work uh, in, in this space for right, the Democrats, right, you know, yeah. and he's going to win it. Yeah. So, OK, I'm just, so you're not that worried. I'm not about that it. worried. OK. All right. Good. Good. Well, it's good to find somebody who's not worried about <laughs> it because there are a lot of pundits, especially on CNN, who are very, very concerned. about. Well, let's this. be clear. Yeah. I'm not worried about the Correct. legal result. Right. I'm worried what happens, what to happens our in reaction. Yeah, I agree with right. that. I'm worried. About, I'm, I'm worried what the 30 percent does in that's response right. to. I think that's yeah, that's far scarier. The rigged election and the rigged yeah. court. Right. Not having them not get their yep. way. Right. And and for the record, because we mentioned Bill Maher on this show earlier, um, Bill is one of the few uh, uh, political pundits who have been saying this since Trump was mm-hmm. elected. Yeah, he, has. he has been he has been saying this guy ain't going to leave. Yeah. And maybe may, maybe we'll all be surprised. But I have my doubts just from the rhetoric that's coming from his mouth at this point. So anyway, Clay. Thank you for coming on yeah, and man. helping us with this with with this uh, segment here. We really appreciate having you around. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. And this th- this info is undeniable, and I think our listeners needed to hear it, and so now they can feel a little bit more confident, at least about our process. So I uh, appreciate you coming on, and yeah. What else we got, Riz? Anything else? That is all we have for you. We wow. went through a lot on yeah, this episode. I am exhausted. So am I. Yeah, I'm emotionally exhausted. Yeah, if I wasn't already from last night, now I am from this episode. I need a hug. I'll give you a hug. It's, it, well, it's COVID. You can't. I'll give you a, you a, a, a you virtual hug. You can't give me a high five. Virtual hug? Yeah, all right, virtual hug. All virtual right, hug, all right? All right. Yeah. And then I'm going to go, hopefully, outside this recording space and find my wife who will give me a real hug. That's lovely. Yeah. It is. It's very sweet. Uh, anyway, we are glad you guys joined us for episode 18. We are getting up there in Seriously. episodes. Um, Not going to stop I, counting, though. 
Yeah, I said it last week and I will say it again. Don't do anything crazy, America. We want to have a slow week. We want to give you a 20 minute episode Just next calm week. Down. Just calm the hell Everyone down. Calm right. down. And stop taking signs to random places and, you know, don't yelling even draw your the feelings. Don't even the draw world. the signs. Right. Yeah. Signs are stupid. No yeah. one, no one, no one cares about Hashtag signs. Hashtag signs are stupid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anything else to add, Jay? That's all I got. We'll let our announcer do the rest. All right. See you guys. Good night. Bye. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.